Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm Shananaka, the worst Yakuza who's ever fucking lived. It's sort of a weird path that he took to doing it. He sort of ended up being subsumed into the system uh, because he wanted to destroy the people within the system. And he never, like, he, he was just a guy who got beat up a bunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's, his whole arc is basically, oh, this guy's a psychotic murderer. I'm going to just kind of keep him at arm's length and occasionally point him at my enemies. Yeah, our Yamanaka uh, is just, he, he's weird. Uh, there, there's... He's our new main character for just this one. My understanding is all of the other ones are uh, based on Shozo. Like, he's the main character of every other entry but this one. This one kind of feels like a spinoff, almost. I mean, it's not. It's obviously very important to what's going on in the world around Shozo. But, yeah, th this one kind of feels like Shozo's just sort of guest starring here. Well, and I think part of it is that it came out so quickly after the first one. This 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 came out only four months after the first one was released. Oh God, Japan crazy. with their like fast move. I don't know how they do it. Well, and uh, I I don't know if you watched the trailer on the disc. We were watching the Arrow box set, of course. Uh, the it, it's the first thing it says in in the trailer is the long-awaited sequel. <laughs> long-awaited, <laughs> four months. Man, I just got out of the theater. I can't wait till the next movie comes out. It's gonna, it's gonna be a whole week. I can't last a week. That's like when Power Rangers ended with "To Be Continued." Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah, again, director Kenji Fukasaku doing his super fucking ultra kinetic stuff. Uh, especially just this beginning that we get a montage of the previous <laughs> movie. Like, the previous movie felt like a montage already. <laughs> we get here a montage of that. Every yeah. single kill, I couldn't, I couldn't even remember who half of them were and why they mattered. Yeah, it is just a huge montage of every death and, wow, like, everything. And then they add one thing in, the Maroka family. Yeah, it's interesting that they add this incredibly important piece of information that's going to make a huge difference and is also new info in the previously on segment. Yeah, I would have to imagine. Well, it's it's world building. It's it's expanding the universe. It's like, okay, we followed that one story. It just shows up, but there are other families involved and these people are all interrelated. And this is sort of after the first one, but it overlaps the first one. It it begins while Shozo is still in jail from, um, yeah. what did he even do? He was in uh, there for a while. It, it was for the killing of Doi, which that's what it it happened somewhere in the midst of part one. Yeah, that's where he's like, oh yeah, that's when Yamamura is like, oh, you're so good for doing this. I'll give you this. I'll give you the world when you get out of that, like takes, makes him buy his own dinner. But then, of course, it comes to later than that, because we also see Shozo's own family, which is just not working out for him. He's he's too honorable. It seems like he, he has, <laughs> he's not doing anything illegal, so he's just got these few guys who are guarding scrap metal in a junkyard, and that's their whole business. But, yeah, the thing about being an honorable, non-criminal Yakuza is it does not pay the bills. It really doesn't. 
a lack of crime truly does not pay. <laughs> Especially in uh, post-war Hiroshima. Right. So, uh, yeah, I didn't even mention uh, Hiroshima Deathmatch. Oh, the name uh, of the movie. 1973, Kenji Fukasaku, second in the uh, Yakuza Papers or Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. Uh, and <laughs> it's it's I, I liked it more than the first one. Uh, not by a lot. I think it, I agree. I think it's better than the first one. I, I actually think this one's easier to follow the storyline than the yeah. first one. Well, because it's mostly just Yaman, Yamanaka and it's his whole rise and fall. And then, you know, ev- with the other one, we're establishing every character. Whereas now we know most of these characters. We only need to meet the Maraukas and uh, the Otomos. Mm-hmm. Oh God, the Otomas! Oh, I love Sonny Chiba so much in this. I uh, rules. He didn't die. He could come back. He could, but I don't think he does. Uh, oh. He's he's not in the other. He has a, a cameo in one of the later ones, but oh, okay. uh, as a different character. Oh, oh, oh yeah. well. Uh, also, in this is uh, Mako Kaji. Mako Kaji, uh, third build. Third build. I was really amazed when I watched the opening credits and we've got uh, Sunny Chiba and Meiko Kaji as the second and third build characters. Like, oh, wow, this they're really expanding fast. Mm-hmm. And and she she plays an interesting character in this, too. Yeah, very. Well, I, both of them really interest. Well, Meiko and Yamanaka, both very associated with post-war Japan, specifically in the kamikazes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Yamanaka, spoiler alert, kind of becomes a kamikaze for the Yakuza. Well, yeah, and it's it's something that he is kind of actively engaging with, and he talks about it as a kamikaze mission most of the time. Mm -hmm. So the Maroka family are the big success in Hiroshima City, whereas I think we've been following them in Kure, for the most Uh, part, in part one. Is where Yamabori's been setting up his whole thing. Right, which is nearby, but not uh, Hiroshima City itself. So uh, Otomo is also like straight in the A-bomb slums later on. Man, what a fucking... What a name for a place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the slums that were left over from the fucking bomb. I just... If you're just going by name and you had to think of one of the worst places to be... Oh, yeah, it's a bad spot. Yeah. Cursed. And, extremely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the other important context in this one is that we hit 1950. So it's where the Korean War is breaking out. So it's this added level of chaos and this new sort of wave of nationalism. Yeah. Oh, man. I have to admit that I know nothing about the Korean War. I don't even really know who was involved. Did you ever watch MASH? I never watched MASH. I've seen bits and pieces here and there, but no, I've never watched the show. MASH is based on the Korean War. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know a whole lot about the specifics of it, but uh, it it was sort of a dark time for Japan. Like, it's another... uh, They did some stuff that's not Mm. great, World War II, and then in the (laughs) Korean War, so it's, it's one of these thorny areas in their history, modern history, that you know, uh, it, it casts a shadow over this. Uh, it's yeah. it's kind of wild the way it plays it. You know, we have this super fast montage uh, 
and then they add the Marauka family in, and then and then 1950, the Korean War breaks out, and there's a fucking explosion, and it, it like <laughs> slams into the credits. I'm like, oh yeah. shit, that's big. Yeah, kind of like how the first one, the opening credits were just like picture of the atom bomb. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, same kind of thing here, except now we're into the Korean War. So mm-hmm. uh, more bombs. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yamanaka, as we're going to see, follows kind of a very similar path uh, to Shozo. Yeah. He, it's it's, just, he handles it differently because he's really not the same type of person. Well, it, it, Yamanaka and... Uh, uh, Katsutoshi Otomo, they're both the mutant crime. They're the post-war crime. Uh, whereas, obviously, Shozo, he's a relic of the past. He's still trying to hold on to the honor of the Yakuza. He doesn't fit the modern mold. These guys are the modern type, the desperate people, the insane people, the the really hyper-elevated crime. Yeah, yeah, they're the ones who get used by the uh, businessman-like Yakuza bosses, who are also not really about the honor. Which, which, you know, is the whole political element of this movie, of the the bureaucracy uh, exploiting the worker. It's just that uh, in the crime world, it's weirdly associated with the normal... Because of the way the Yakuza worked in the post-war, they weren't entirely illegal. They were sort of aligned with the cops. It's during the course of this movie that they illustrate the point at which they stopped being friends with the cops. They become enemies in this. (laughs) They they literally have a conversation. It's like, hey, hey, police, you better not get too big for your britches. We helped you in the Korean War. Well, we don't need you, Yakuza, now. We're the cops. Yeah, so they they become enemies by the end of it because they had been the black market was necessary in the post-war. They they did need someone to run it and the police couldn't do that because, you know, the, the whole infrastructure was destroyed. So yeah. you you needed a yakuza. It's just after a few years after like a decade it's like oh, do we still need a yakuza? <laughs> the yakuza say we do. The yakuza are absolutely certain that they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the credits, the opening credits, they appear over newspaper headlines, much like I, the first one. Please. I wish I knew what these headlines were saying. Yeah, it's too bad that they don't translate them on the disc in, in the subtitles. But yeah. one thing that's cool is this is how all of the freeze frame and uh, text that appears on the screen is... Uh, formatted they're they're newspaper headlines they're like these screaming newspaper headlines of like okay this person died and they give <laughs> yep. the date and time you know our death subtitles are back of and course are sent accompanied with sentence to prison subtitles <laughs> yeah those are almost comic i really the first one made me laugh out loud that was so good oh yeah <laughs> So, yeah, it's basically right away here. Shoji, Shoji Yamanaka. It's 1950. He's in Hiroshima. And he's cheating uh, at a, a, a dice game. Yep, he's he's got like a trick card or something like that, which they catch almost instantly. Of course. You know, th- yeah. this is not a place that you do that. Everybody beats the shit out of him. And yeah, Don't cheat the cheaters. 
not a good idea. Not not in Hiroshima, not with the Yakuza uh, handling all of it. You're going to get cut up. Mm-hmm. So it goes the other way, though. He gets beat up and then like they beat him up really bad. And then he yeah. is away for a second. And then we have that moment where he's like recuperating and he sees a knife and it just <laughs> cuts into immense chaos. I, I like the violence in this movie is done a little bit differently from the first one. They They used a lot of freeze frames in the first one, but... Uh, there you were usually just seeing the whole chaos of the fight. You get that a couple times in this, but mostly you just get uh, frames. You get like, this is like a shot of things happening. Here's like a freeze frame of just crazy violence. Oh yeah. Like, like you're looking at a comic book of uh, violence, of violence panels kind of. Yeah. Like a flip book. You're, you're looking through a photo gallery. You're not, you're, or I, I would say, especially newspaper images, like you, you got oh. single frames of the, the violence going down. Yeah, there. Right. There you go. So there it, you know, he, he just fucking runs in. He starts hacking and slashing everybody, just blood spraying people going. Ah! <laughs> and it stops like freezes. Yeah, it freezes solid and it goes. Uh, Shoji Yamanaka was sentenced, was given a two year sentence for assault. <laughs> it's genius Uh, i I love that bit (laughs) yep so (laughs) we see him in jail or do we go to him in jail right away or is that later we cut immediately to him in jail where he is beaten again because uh he will not show the cops his asshole sufficiently for them so (laughs) it's like hey show your asshole like what show your asshole better and then they start beating him up (laughs) (laughs) and shozo is watching this kind of like from the crowd like oh (laughs) the look on his face every time he sees it interacts with yamanaka is always like (sighs) here's another one yeah i'm like i gotta help this fucking guy he doesn't know the ropes i gotta show him how to do this stuff he's like this this guy's on the verge he's gonna be in our yakuza circle i gotta show him what to do yeah this guy is going to make trouble if someone doesn't guide him and we don't get a lot of shozo here we see him in this sequence and then we don't get to him for quite a while again Uh, Uh, but it shows him and it's like yeah shozo currently serving a sentence for killing doi like oh yeah i remember doi yeah but future head of the hirono family like oh we haven't seen yeah. that yet Mm-mm, that's new so yamanaka is put in solitary after they beat him for not showing his butt and uh <laughs> shozo brings him rice so yeah. he he befriends him more or less and and this establishes a reason for him to come to shozo later on yeah yeah uh, shozo befriends a lot of people in prison that's that's kind of seems to be his thing that's how you network in the Yakuza. That's, that's prison networking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, even Yamanaka manages it later on. Basically. Basically. So, so we cut forward two years already. It's crazy. This this is another one like the first one where it spans five years, except this one, it is uh, most of the action takes place over the course of like three months. <laughs> it makes this one, I find, a little bit easier to follow because it's yes. really just dealing with one incident one series of incidents and one one and a half families yeah it's it's much more compressed uh we're we're sort of getting 
a, a simple rise and fall of a couple characters rather than here is the sprawling map laid out for every <laughs> fucking character in like multiple families. There's so many people to keep track of. Oh, yeah. One. But they do still throw us like, yep, yeah, don't for, don't worry. Shows us still doing stuff off to the side here. This guy every now and then like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's he's doing stuff. You'll see him later. Right. So this one, uh, he he gets out and he immediately it's rule of threes. He gets his third beating. This time it's yep. the Yakuza. So he has been beaten by the gamblers and the police. And now the Yakuza, he goes to this restaurant. This is where we meet Meiko Kaji as well. Yep. She, uh, I think she just, I don't think she even runs it. I think she just works at the restaurant. Yeah. She's working at the restaurant. I, I don't get exactly what her family situation is. I think her parents are out of the picture and obviously her husband we don't get this for a while, but he was a kamikaze pilot during World War II, and so he's dead. Yep, and and I didn't realize this, like, it never even occurred to me, because I never looked that closely into it, but the cultural stuff surrounding kamikaze pilots who have died... Oh yeah, uh, there's, it's wild. I never, never even thought about it, but yeah, that would be intense, and it does come up here. It's, it's ultra patriotism, and that, that's sort of what generates the Yakuza, or not mm-hmm. the Yakuza, the, the kamikaze. So uh, Mako, she is the niece of Boss Murauka, uh, and she gives him some food at this restaurant, and he's like, I don't actually have any food to pay, or I don't have any money to pay for the food. Uh, will you take this watch? And I was kind of hoping maybe I could get a job here. It's like you you came here to knowing you didn't have money to get a meal. Like, I don't want your shitty watch. Fuck you. <laughs> Just go, whatever. You can have the meal for free. And then all of yeah. the Yakuza in the restaurant just get into a fight with him because he says, Hey, that's rude. <laughs> I'm not a beggar. I want to force myself into your life by working. Yeah, I just want to get a job here like well that's kind of a shitty way to try and get a job uh and they beat him up and she is not happy about him getting beaten she does object yeah i mean they go overboard they go really overboard this is the worst of the three beatings he receives for sure yeah because uh the person orchestrating the beating is our good friend uh satoshi otobo Satoshi Otomo, Chiba, Sonny Chiba, of course, in his Hawaiian shirts, which I feel are, especially with his ultranationalism and how he talks about the kamikaze himself, uh, I feel like it is uh, him kind of playing with the Pearl Harbor thing. It definitely could be that. Um, him living a, a reference to it, because, uh, yeah. And he yeah. is he is the real mutant crime in this one. He's sort of doing Toshiro Mifune. The way he carries his sword, he's very much mm. like uh, Mifune in Seven Samurai. Right, right. Yeah. He... <laughs> and I think <laughs> as a character, he's probably actively copying him because that movie was... Or no, this is 52, so I don't think it's out yet. I think it comes out in 55, 55 or 57. So it's not out yet. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, most of the main action does happen in 55, though. Right. But this is still 52. Oh, right, so he right. couldn't be copying him yet. Well, but he's copying a lot of other things. He's got the aviator shades. He's got oh, yeah. like a fedora. 
he's, he's got he's got a, a unique style. He's got a very distinct style, and it has uh, there's a lot of Americana to it. But it's he's obviously not pro America. He's he's very he he's extremely nationalist, but in just this sort of weird and chaotic way. He reminds me of if uh, in board the version of Al Capone that we see in Boardwalk Empire. If that yeah. guy didn't have an off switch, yeah, yeah, he he's on all the time, and he's just deranged. He loves violence. He loves violence, but he also has uh, Shozo's shipping chart. So while Shozo would use the shipping chart that we discussed, of course, in the previous uh, mm, battles with yeah, yeah. yeah he would use it to try to prevent war uh <laughs> kazutoshi uses it to try to make the biggest war he can well he just wants to create chaos he is a complete agent of chaos mm-hmm. so of course uh they beat the shit out of uh yamanaka and uh yasuko uh meiko kaji's character defends him and he swears bloody vengeance that he is going to kill all of them i just think it's really funny it's like hey leave this guy alone he's just an innocent civilian i'm going to kill all of you i'm taking a blood oath and of course then they continue to beat him of course (laughs) but uh then the boss shows up choji otomo uh who is katsutoshi's dad yeah uh (laughs) these two don't see eye to eye no of course uh but they they run off and uh he's yelling and like man stop fucking doing this shit what's wrong with you we don't need this crap and yasuko uh nurses him back to health so this is where their romance sort of begins uh which is a weird element of this movie there's no yeah. romance in the previous one no and I'd argue there isn't much of a romance in this one either. No, it's a very strange one. Uh, I mean, in in the style of this, the the way it uh, starts out feels really violent. Well, he basically, she comes home drunk and she's like, hey, why don't you put me to bed and give me a kiss? And he's thinking about it. And the thing about Yamanaka is he's incapable of making a good decision, but. Well, I might have done the same thing if I was her. I might have, or if I was him, I might have kissed her too, knowing that she's the boss's niece. But like Yamanaka and Katsutoshi, both of them, they share the same problem. They have no impulse control. Yep. They're oh God, they're yeah. both just completely uh, unable to control their emotions or their actions. Because mm-hmm. immediately after the consensual kiss, he goes and forces himself on her. Yeah, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Oh, so, oh sorry, sorry. The so uh, Yamanaka is taken in by the Maraukas. He he sort of becomes a member of them. He's not quite a hitman for them yet, but he wants to do hits because he's got this whole blood oath thing coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. Maroka asks him, "It's like, hey, you could be an upstanding citizen, or you could join us. What do you want to do?" well, I have to kill these people at the market, yeah. so... There, there's all these people I've got to kill. I've got this huge death list, so obviously I will join you guys. And he's like, okay, well, you're not allowed to fight unless I say so, but welcome to the team. Right, uh, and uh, we'll, you'll report directly to our guy Kunamatsu Takanashi, who is a sworn brother of Maroka, 
And Takanashi is sort of a, a Shozo type. He's an honorable guy. Is he the one who who encounters uh, Yamanaka in prison later on? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't figure out the prison. I couldn't figure out who the prison guy was before. So it's this guy. Okay. Yeah, it's Takanashi. So he. Uh, I, the other thing is, uh, Maroka, it's it's very much like uh, uh, Yamamoto or Yamamori, rather. It's it's very much like Yamamori in the first one with the the like really elaborate show of we're going to give you all of the money so you can enjoy yourself before you go to jail. <laughs> it's it's a lot like that, except there doesn't seem to be quite the same. Like it, it's obviously again a, a a really ostentatious show of being a generous boss, where he gives him his own expensive gold watch right off his wrist. Yeah, and then he has his henchman say to him, "Hey, that's that's a gold Swiss watch right off the boss's wrist." You see yeah. how generous the boss is, right? And it establishes like. If you've seen the first one, it should make alarm bells ring. It's like, oh, this guy's yep. doing a Yamamori thing. He is manipulating him to uh, seem like he's this generous overlord, but he's really going to screw him later on, and he totally does. Oh, repeatedly, often. Yamamori at least pretends to be sorry about it. Right. So it, it's it's clearly establishing, like, okay, let's not trust Maroka too much. He seems decent right now, but I wouldn't trust him. <laughs> when I when I got the picture, like when we first see the newspaper picture of Muroka, I was thinking to myself, okay, is this guy going to be uh, a honorable, kind old man Yakuza, a shitty, manipulative worm old man Yakuza, secret badass Yakuza? Uh, he, he's the second one. But I couldn't tell at first from the way he looks. Yeah, you, you can never quite tell, but it doesn't take long. For, yeah. I, I would say as soon as you see this, it's like, oh, he's going to be a bad guy. I mean, he yeah. is being really generous right now, but I don't believe it for a second, especially because of how public it is. Mm -hmm. So it is after this that uh, we, we cut forward to uh, Yasuko showing up drunk at his place for a kiss. And it, it's weird. It's not like I would not say that it is a rape scene. No. It, there is a moment where she is saying hey, no, because she is the daughter of a boss. She's under the... And, and there's this whole thing with her husband and the family of the husband, and she's... So the kamikaze stuff, They we don't get to it for quite a while, but that's why she's saying no. It's not that yeah. she doesn't want him. Clearly, she wants him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's it's like a Shozo thing of the shipping charts. Like, I'm not allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> if I do this then that family will fight with that family and that family will fight with that and then Austria-Hungary will get involved. Yeah, because her her husband was a kamikaze pilot and he did die in the war and the family wants her to marry the brother who she's not attracted to and doesn't like. So she's just yeah. kind of avoiding the whole issue. Yeah, she has a daughter with this guy too, uh, the, right. with her husband. Yeah, and th that's sort of a thing that they're constantly holding over her head. And it's like, hey, think about, I think it's Mio. Yeah, Mio, yeah. think about what's best for her. He's like, come on, Just what's best one... for me? What about my life? <laughs> no, 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 what's best for Mio, which happens to be what's best for Muroka. 
it yeah well i i would have to admit though yamanaka does not seem to be what would be best for any sort of stable family situation so (laughs) when when the henchman tells him later on it's like you can't be her lover he's completely right yeah maroka i mean it's it's not fair for her to not be allowed to see anyone, but keeping her away from Yamanaka, I mean, it just makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've never seen the guy do a non-violent thing. No, like even this, the way they they start their relationship, quote-unquote, is it seems kind of violent and she's saying no, and then she's into it. And then it's so wild the way it cuts scenes to, they. she starts to get into it and then it's like, this really chaotic shot of him just being part of the family and he's like throwing Mio up in the air. It's just like the way it cuts from one to the other feels like such a weird, violent shift. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like a lot of time has actually passed between these two events, but no. And it also just the the energy of it feels really anarchic and kind of dangerous is like i don't know if i like him being around this kid the the way we cut from the vaguely rapey sex scene into that just instantly smash cuts like this guy probably (laughs) isn't good to be around kids (laughs) (laughs) well we only get to see him do so for this one scene yeah because we then go to takanashi and uh hiroshi who we don't see a lot of and both of them are like you can't be in this relationship. <laughs> Dude. Bosmer Oka already found out and he's coming after you with a fucking sword guy. Yeah, you, you're going to have to leave town. And this is where we get the whole background of her being a war widow, a kamikaze pilot. Yeah. And yeah, it's how- also clear that she sees in him the same self-destructive strain of quote-unquote valor it's what she sees in him he is the same self-destructive kind of personality as someone who would become a kamikaze but i think she's into that yes exactly that's why she's into him yeah later on uh when he he mentions he wanted to be a kamikaze pilot she's like oh did you sign up yeah she's it, it makes her so hot yeah so of course for now yamanaka has to leave town yeah. Uh, he he goes to stay with the Takahara family in Kyushu. Uh, because, yeah, Maroka's after him with the sword now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not part of the deal. So. Well, you didn't specify I wasn't allowed to kiss your niece. I didn't think I'd have to. Just, you are a new hire. Uh, you can't start banging the boss's daughter right now. That's not okay. So Takahara has some problems that he'd like to be solved. There's these two guys, Wada and Itsuki, or Itsuki, yeah, uh, Wada and Itsuki, who cut him out of some deal. Mm-hmm. I like the way that they uh, give Yamanaka the mission. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to take you to this restaurant. and You're going to sit there for three minutes. Yeah, just just sit in this room. We put a gun on the table and we're going to have a conversation in the next room. You could just maybe overhear it a little bit where we talk about these people that we have problems with. And you got this gun right there. Maybe you could take (laughs) care of some problems for us. I don't know. Man, I sure hope somebody takes out Wada (laughs) for us so we don't have to start a war with Wada and Itsuki. 
It just seems like it would be a whole lot of trouble saved for us if someone were to do something. Yeah. <laughs> Especially someone who isn't associated with us, so we've got deniability. And of course, someone else comes in who's there to take him to his next destination. They like literally say, hey, I'm here to take you to your next destination. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it was literally sit in this restaurant booth for three minutes, take the gun, listen to the shit, and go. Yeah. So they take him to Wada's construction site, where he assassinates Wada. Yep. And this is, uh, you know, good work. This is something that makes a name for him, so Maroka forgives him. It's like, okay, you're a proper Yakuza, you're an actual hitman now. Uh, just you know, stay under my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Everything will be okay. Yeah, just, uh, just going to keep you on a very short leash. Yeah. So he goes back to Hiroshima. He's now properly a hitman for the Maroka family. And now we're in 1955, where pretty much all the action happens. <laughs> <laughs> so the big thing is that uh, the Maroka gets, uh, Maroka family gets a security contract for this uh, bicycle race at the Hiroshima Velodrome. And I guess he's just the security guy for uh, the, all of the races going forward. Because this is like a big, it, it's much like the previous one where everybody wants a cut of Yamamori's uh, boat racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, it's interesting that like Yakuza could get legitimate security contracts with uh, big corporations. Right. That's, that's Although, what it was back then. Oh, completely. Although it's, there are analogs to this in the US because like the Hells Angels sort of showed up and did security for concerts at times oh, in the right. 60s which thought... caused problems <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> much like right. the yakuza doing this sort of stuff uh most famously uh, the altamont show in 1970 with the rolling stones where a couple people got killed <laughs> oh. <laughs> on camera oh uh yeah this okay. is one of those big end of the '60s kind of things. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. There Destroyed the idealism. There's a really great documentary called "Gimme Shelter" where mm -hmm. they see all that stuff. Okay. So uh, the the Hiroshima or the Hiroshima Velodrome, he he gets this contract, and Katsutoshi's guys. They're I don't I don't know if they're specifically trying to cause trouble or if it's just them fucking around. They get a bunch of firecrackers, kind of like M80s, and just start throwing them around. Yeah, like like children putting cherry bombs in the elementary school toilets is the vibe I got out of this at first. It, it's it's strange. I don't really know what their end game to this is. It just seems to be pure chaos. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I think it's like they'll cause the shit, and that gives Katsutoshi an excuse to come in and cause more shit. And I. Like at some point in their plan, it is a question marks question marks profit thing. I don't know <laughs> how he plans to relay this to some sort of profit, but that is his plan. I guess. Yeah. He he's I, I think it's like um I think it's kind of like the thing like, hey, these guys are supposed to be keeping the stadium safe. I'm proving mm -hmm. that they can't do that by making the stadium unsafe. So hire me to keep the stadium safe. Right, because he specifically wants a position on the board, which 
if you want a position on the board, you don't really go throw explosives. It's just not the way you go about things. You but do when you're Sonny Chiba. It's true. And also, it kind of almost works. Like, I feel like it would work if Maroka weren't on the board himself. Because mm-hmm. like they, they even discuss, The chief of like... police. <laughs> the chief of police himself is, is suggesting it. Yeah, yeah. Just give him a, a position on the board, and that'll make it work. Yeah, the the chief of police, like, come on, the age of violence is over. <laughs> <laughs> I love when like the official is calling the cops. He's like, okay, I know you're going to get some reports about some violence here, but we've got Yakuza here, and we're dealing with it. Oh, oh, you got Yakuza dealing with it? Great. We don't have to get yeah, yeah. involved. Yeah, like, hey, uh, we've got it all under control. There's some stuff going down here, but we've got the Yakuza security. We don't need you guys. I'm like, okay, okay, we got it. <laughs> and, like, it's not a Yakuza guy calling. It is a city councillor yep. who works there who's calling them to say, don't worry, the Yakuza have it under control. <laughs> Good Amazing. thing we got all these Yakuza keeping the peace <laughs> in Hiroshima. It's perfect. Uh, it, it's totally sustainable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah the chief of police is like hey just give otomo a position at the racetrack it'll solve the whole thing and maroka's like fuck no i hate that guy absolutely <laughs> not i'll step down if you do that yep. then you won't have my protection you think this guy's gonna do the job himself not a chance <laughs> he's right yeah yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> They all know it's like, oh, well, I mean, if you're going to bow out, if he comes in, that just screws us. So I guess not. <laughs> Katsutoshi is somebody who would like forget that he's doing security as soon as his team loses and start the riot yeah. himself. Completely. And it's it's not even that it's something he cares about or something he specifically wants to. It's just it's 10 years after the war. The black market's starting to dry up. Yeah. And, and that's his thing. Uh, he he's talking to his guys after this like man i want to get in on this we don't have much to do here in hiroshima ever anymore all, all of this stuff's starting to i mean the infrastructure is starting to build back up again where do we fit in cops are starting to be a little bit less afraid of us yeah so he thinks a gang war might be the best solution for him you just topple all the people at the top and then there's a power vacuum there's places for him to go yep that is oh my god that's his entire plan yeah (laughs) (laughs) so of course his 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 father boss otomo disowns him uh he's like fuck you you're screwing everything up kuramitsu is now going to inherit the family instead of you i love kuramitsu in this scene he's just like i've got a big target on my back now (laughs) he's like this is gonna cause a problem for me you see you could have just said someone else maybe (laughs) yeah like that would have been fair but also your son scares me rightfully so katsutoshi is the most frightening person out of uh, either of these first two movies he is just pure chaotic energy Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so he decides he's going to start his own gambling den and uh um there's this guy matsunada he shows up and he's gonna like shut it down it's like hey come on you know maroka has this whole area what the fuck do you think you're doing starting up a gambling den without his permission <laughs> and Gazatoshi's like hey i got someone's permission <laughs> yeah no you don't understand 
I just became the successor to the Tokamori family. Tokamori, I, I can't figure out where he fits into <laughs> all this. Why would he do this? He seems like he has some sort of chip on his shoulder against Maroka going back to the past. Because it's clearly a fuck you Maroka way of going about it. Because he hasn't told anyone until these guys show up and uh katsutoshi calls him from the back room and's like no no i've got i've got tokimori he's giving me this place and he owns this territory you know and he comes out and's like yeah i've been a gambler for longer than uh what's his name uh than maroka uh, than maroka yeah I, i've yeah. been a gambler way longer than maroka uh, so i feel like i can just uh do what i want and is he gonna stop me <laughs> and we go to Morocco and he's like, well, I'm expelling him from the business then. Fuck you. <laughs> so there's a gang war. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's exactly what he wanted. Yeah, because of course Sunny or uh Katsutoshi is just like expel no, we'll expel him from our family. Yeah. We're we're expelling all of them. You know, then Tokamori and Katsutoshi are done. Screw you guys. So uh in response, Katsutoshi's guys hit Maroka. They they try to assassinate him. They they try to assassinate him a few times in this movie. He's good at not dying. Yeah, he's he's really getting out of it. He doesn't have the real Teflon Don nature of Yamamori, who just nothing ever gets up to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Yamamori's just kind of like I'm not even going to get involved in this one. Well, no, he yeah. does get involved, but in he a gets way involved, that- but. Yeah, back channels. Yeah. <laughs> That's his way. Whereas Maroka, he just keeps getting involved in it because he has a personal stake. He personally dislikes Katsutoshi. Whereas uh, Yamamori, I don't think he has any opinions on anyone or anything. He's just doing the biz. <laughs> yep. <laughs> totally. no, none of it's personal. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of Katsutoshi's guys goes in, he shoots the place up to draw the first bunch of Yakuza out. And then all of them go in and there's just, it's the most chaotic fight in the movie. It's much like the the bigger fights in the first one, whereas most of this one has all of the freeze frames. Mm-hmm. This is just the first one. It's just these guys going in, there's hacking and slashing and shooting. It feels like a lot more people die than do. Yeah, we find out there's only two dead and eight injured somehow. Right. Somehow. The hack and slash is fucking unreal. <laughs> <laughs> So meanwhile, we catch up with Shozo. Yep, he's doing, well, I was about <laughs> to say he's doing well for himself, but he's doing for himself. He's he's struggling. His family is struggling. Uh, they're in Kure, and he, they're, they're just guarding a scrapyard, nothing else. They, they seem to live on a cargo boat. I think they're living on not just a cargo boat, but like uh, a, a landed cargo boat, one that's just in dry dock that's not (laughs) functional yeah yeah (laughs) so they bring tokamori to his place Uh, yamamoto and his wife show up and they're like hey can you do us a solid he's like fuck you i don't like you guys don't you remember i don't like you remember that whole whole thing (laughs) yeah uh i still had bullets i still have those bullets by the way yeah it's and yeah, I don't think Yamamori even talks to him. I think it's only nope. the wife who speaks to him, right? It is only the wife. Yamamori doesn't get out of the car. He just looks. He's, he stays in the car. And he knows. He knows that he can't come and talk to him. It's not going to work out. 
yeah. And, and uh, the wife just hands him a huge envelope of money. It's like, you obviously need this. And he he says, no, I don't need this. And I don't like you guys, so I'm not going to do it. And then it's later that day, he's oh. walking with his dudes. And yeah. He's like, okay, you know, go get some meat from the market. And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. (laughs) (laughs) We we see them capture a dog. Yeah, they they capture and kill a dog. And we we hard cut to the meat on the grill and only Shozo eating and all of them kind of looking sheepish. And outside, his dog is barking. (laughs) Oh, well, I'll just give my dog some of this meat to calm him down. Why won't he eat this? I'm like, guys, what kind of meat is this? You didn't get this from the butcher, did you? And the, the one of his guys is like, oh, cut my finger off. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you can take my pinky. I'm like, ah, God, fucking damn it. I guess I really do need this money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fine, I'll talk to Yamamori. I'm like, uh, I mean, my principles are less important than us eating. So fine. I I'll take care of fucking Tokamori, whatever. Yeah, this uh, stupid Kim Jong-un-looking asshole. Yeah, and then Yamanaka shows up a couple days later. And <laughs> he's he's like, hey, Shozo, I'm supposed to kill that Tokamori guy. And he's like, ah, see, this creates a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, because I've been hired to not let, probably you specifically, kill to- Tokamori. And it's like, I don't mind if you kill him i really don't i kind of would like him to die but you can't do it here because it's gonna really mess with me maybe look i'll talk to him i'll get him to go back to hiroshima and i'll tell you where he's gonna be and you can kill him there and uh, yeah and i was like cool yeah i'm good with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, meanwhile tokamori is like your place sucks it's dirty and it sucks and i hate it here um and i'm gonna keep insulting yeah. you and not leave and Shozo does say that he likes Maroka. He has some affection for Maroka because I think Maroka helped him out in the first one at a different, like it's something we didn't see because he was never yeah. mentioned in the first one, but he presumably had some dealings with him in the, the area where he was being shuffled around mm-hmm. uh, after, <laughs> after the murders that he had to go to jail for. Yeah. Which, you know, it sort of suggests that maybe Maroka isn't going to screw him later, but he sure does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a fake out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he's got like those, like, he just looks like a friendly old man. Right. He he doesn't seem like he's going to be a real uh, dick. Like Yamamori, you look at him, you kind of know he is going to be a dick. The the way he carries himself. Yeah, yeah. Like the way he's got that little mustache and smokes that cigar and a stick. And it's it's the way he speaks. It's oh, it's yeah. totally like his manner of speech. It's that really, really whiny, uh, but. Uh, imperious he's, he's like trying to tell you what to do but he's really whiny about it it's his whole way of doing things <laughs> yeah we, we only get one of those in this movie which is <laughs> when he phones uh shozo later on that one's pretty good <laughs> so they're driving tokamori back to hiroshima and he dips out they they have and it's like oh can we just pull over so i can go to the bathroom and he he takes off yeah and 
for some reason, Shozo's waiting for him at Katsutoshi's place. He's like, he sends Shozo to yeah. Katsutoshi's, I guess, at, at his pawn shop. Yeah. He's supposed to wait there for him. Because uh, he's like, uh, you know, or I, I guess that's not to go to the bathroom. There's something he has to do. He says, he's he like, wants to you got to let me out here. It's like girlfriend's yeah. place or whatever. Yeah. And it, he's it's a like, very flipsy. Right. And he's like, just go hang at Katsutoshi's and I'll meet you there. And I think there's this is Yamanaka. Oh. Or no, Yamamori. Yeah. Yamamori phones there. <laughs> I love this one. He's like, Shozo. Were you going to feed Tokamori to Yamanaka after it's all I fair. did for you? It, it's like, I, 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 why are you moving Takamori? Who, whose plan was this? And Katsutoshi's <sighs> listening in on all of it. Of course, yeah. And everyone's like, you were going to let Yamanaka kill Takamori, weren't you? And like, Shame Whoa. on you, <laughs> I trusted you. And and we cut to Yamamori, and he's hanging out at Maroka's. Yeah. He's like, oh, damn it. And like, Shozo, you need to keep Katsutoshi from coming to Hiroshima. And Katsutoshi's listening in, so yeah. it's like, Katsutoshi knows, like, oh, it's going to cause chaos if I go to Hiroshima? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Guess where I'm going. And, of course, this is all because Yamamori is trying to expand his territory, so he's going to start taking over some of Hiroshima now, too. So he kind of wants to partner with Maroka. Mm-hmm. So Shozo's like, ah, goddammit, he's unrolling all his charts and like, okay, how do I figure this out? I, re- I Takamori is, I, I'm, I'm sure of this. And he's like, no, no, you guys don't understand. If we just sacrifice Takamori, it's going to stop the gang war. Uh, he's the only guy that nobody cares about <laughs> yeah. like nobody really mad like none of you really like him i know yamamori you you say he's an old friend but you don't really care you you don't like anybody just if we kill this one guy nobody else needs to die wouldn't that be the best <laughs> <laughs> so katsutoshi starts a fight with him because he is i guess sort of indebted to tokamori since tokamori was the guy whose family he's going to inherit yeah, yeah. He needs, I guess he needs to protect him so he can inherit this family. Right. Uh, which isn't really yeah. going to work out for him. Well, no, but. He's not going to manage to uh, uh, protect Tokamori. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love this kill. <laughs> it's pretty great. So Shozo's like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to kill Tokamori myself. Go get me a gun. <laughs> <laughs> And they, they go to where Tokamori is. They they find him hiding out. And they they say they have a note from Yamamori. And they put it under the door. As he's like waiting for him to take the note under the door, he's like crouched just like just this perfect way so that looking under the door you wouldn't see him. He's, it's this thing that shouldn't work, but it, it does work because it's a movie, so I love it. He just points where the hedge should be if he's going to take the envelope and then he pulls the trigger yeah as soon as he sees the the envelope start to move pulls the trigger shoots him in the head and it goes uh tokamori died march 23rd 1955 (laughs) yeah yep i like that it's always died in this one it's never was killed it's always uh tokamori died (laughs) don't know how it happened uh you know he just seemed to develop uh 
bullet wound to the brain complications somehow. Yeah, and uh, Shozo goes to Yamamori and, Mor- and Moroka. He goes straight to their place. He's like, hey, I-, I just got back from killing Tokamori. And Yamamori's like, hey, I told you not to do that, you jerk. <laughs> and Moroka's like, eh, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, like, it's like hey, I'm not too how, mad. <laughs> this is how I prevent the gang war. Yeah. So he's like, well, uh, that's fine. Do you got do you have someone who's gonna go down for it? Because you're gonna have to sacrifice one of your guys. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. My my guy Koichi Shimada, he's gonna take the fall, and it cuts to him getting a 12-year sentence. Yeah. So Katsutoshi has no influential friends anymore. So he has to reconcile with Otomo and uh, Maroka. Mm-hmm. They they have a whole reconciliation ceremony. So he's going to calm down, supposedly. Supposedly. And his family has, has to, to be disbanded. He has to disband and he has to leave the city. Yeah. And Kuramitsu gets to, stay, gets to have a stake in the racetrack. So uh, Katsutoshi oh, right, has to leave the... town. That's the other Otomo successor guy. Yeah, the guy who right. uh, Katsutoshi should have inherited this, and he wants a stake in the racetrack. And now Kuramitsu's getting that, and Katsutoshi has to leave town. Yeah. So we know he's not going to be happy about this, and he's going to be, there's going to be blowback. Oh, there will be blood. Yeah. So Maroka, he reconciles Yamanaka and Yasuko. Uh, he he says like okay you guys can stay together but you you can't marry it's just not allowed uh because of the husband's family and that's where we get the background from her about them wanting her to marry his brother instead yeah because if she marries anybody else it'll dishonor the husband's memory yeah and that's i think where he gets into how he wanted to be a kamikaze too and then he wasn't able to and she's it's where we see their romance such as it is such as it is like this even in the best of circumstances this would not be a healthy relationship no no not good so immediately katsutoshi starts hatching a plan to assassinate kuramitsu and take over the otomo family he feels it belongs to him i mean he is otomo yeah i mean (laughs) he's the son of the guy he's like nepotism should work for for me damn it yeah uh, but Yamanaka kills uh, all a bunch of his guys because he has these three assassins that he's getting ready to take out Kuramitsu. But Yamanaka goes and kills them himself because those are all guys on his hit list. They're the guys who beat him up at the restaurant. Yep. Uh, but then Yamanaka gets arrested immediately. Yeah, he is immediately arrested and he gets a life sentence. Well, I guess that's the end of him. He won't be coming back. <laughs> No, I, I mean, he's going to have to go in cold storage. Yeah. Uh, so Maroka takes over the Otomo family and consolidates total power over Hiroshima. Wonder so, if this uh, might have been his plan from the get-go. It kind of seems like maybe that was the whole idea. He was just kind of using these little internecine uh, squabbles to just you know, quietly take over mm-hmm. without offending anyone. He he. Th- this is why Shozo respects him. They both know how to play the game. Yeah. So now we got Kagera, who's the elder who takes over the cer- who like uh, watches over the ceremony for Maroka taking over the Otomo family and consolidating power. 
Oh, so yeah. Katsutoshi's men go after him. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the one on the train, right? Right. Yeah. Oh man, this should have been a quick and easy assassination that they just love it so horribly. Well, because I I don't is it like the safety is off or something on something like that <laughs> the yeah. safety is enough because he he pulls the gun and he goes up and it just clicks a few times and then they have to chase him through the train. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's but, like this huge public spectacle. It's amazing, but my favorite part is that after this, they decide to give a press interview about why they did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're turning ourselves in. We uh, we shot this guy on the train. Oh, also, we're heroes. We're gonna get out of Katsutoshi's PR firm. Decided to yeah. get out ahead of this. This is them being like, we're at a Yakuza clan, and we're legit, and uh, you know we've we're getting our power back and here's the gun we used and they, they all smile and are like photographed with it. <laughs> yeah. Like a photo op. Uh, I, I think their thing is like, yeah, we're, we're doing like big mergers on the street against uh, Baroka family, but he's bribing cops. You don't want criminals yeah. to bribe cops. Do you? Yeah. I mean, we're just crime against other criminals. He's trying to go legitimate. You don't want that. Yeah. So then Takanashi goes into prison to see Yamanaka. I, I I don't really, like, it seems like he intentionally goes to prison to see him rather than anything actually legitimately sending him there. We don't see the incident that puts him in prison. Right. Yeah, like, and he's like, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like Takanashi specifically just went in to let him know what's going on. That's kind of what it seems like, because he's like in and out like it's a revolving door. Yeah, and he says, I'm going to be in and out here. It's just a little thing, but you need to know about this. So in his absence, Maroka is forcing Yasuko to go marry the brother-in-law, which the family's always wanted, and that's going to help him get a little bit, just an iota more of power. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, he, he he's that, that gets him in with the military now. Right. And then we see what's going on over at Maroka's and that this is true. Yeah, uh, we see him slap Yasuko, and this is the one time we get a classic Meikokaji death glare. Oh yes, <laughs> we've done a few movies with her without it, and I've missed it so much. Yeah, so he's. This is where this is that things like no woman can wait more than three <laughs> years for a man. It's science. <laughs> <laughs> it's been scientifically proven. Uh, he's going to be in there for like twenty years, and also. You need to think about Mio. You need to think about Mio. Yeah. Yeah. Like you need to actually have a stable father for her. Yeah. Which, I mean, is the brother going to be? Who knows? Maybe that's why she's not attracted to him because he's not so self-destructive. Maybe. That's what she's into. Yeah. So Yamanaka, he stages a prison break. He, well, not a prison break. He fakes an illness by like, cutting himself and he gets a bunch of blood and he puts it in his mouth and makes it seem like he's coughing it up so i had so with the two movies that we had watched uh, i watched the second one first and the second one features a character removing pinkies this being quite a a sorry quite a lot Mm -hmm. this being a yakuza movie i assumed that it would feature characters removing pinkies but uh and that this would be the pinky removal episode but it isn't uh, yeah, no, no, none of that. But what it is is the uh, 
use your own blood to make yourself look like you're sick in order to get out of captivity episode. Yeah, both no, that does happen in both. Yep. So uh, he gets out. He escapes from the hospital. Much easier to escape from a hospital than from a prison. Mm-hmm. And he heads straight for Maroka. And Maroka's like, oh, shit. And they get a hold of Yasuko and bring her back so that he doesn't kill him. Yeah, because he is at Maroka's place on his knees with the gun. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, the, the, uh, who told you that? That's in, what are you talking about? And they, they open a door and she's there. Like, she's just gotten back. But he thinks that he was always there or that she was always there. And they say that Takanashi was lying to him. They're gaslighting him. They are gaslighting him. They and, start calling him selfish. Yeah. And he's like, oh my God, I've made such a huge mistake. Kill me with this gun, boss. Yamanaka is just, he is unstable. He's not a well person. He clearly shouldn't be in amongst these people. It's, Obviously, just setting him down a really self-destructive path. Although, Yasuko could have said, actually, my uncle's lying to you, and I was sent away. Yeah, but I I, I don't well, think he has a chance to be alone with her, because now... Oh, yeah, I guess not. In, in, to make amends for this, he decides he needs to kill Katsutoshi. And Katsutoshi's already on his hit list, so now that he's out of jail and... He obviously can't just go back. That's not going to be okay. He has a life sentence. Well, they want him to go back. That's what uh, Matsunaga's yeah. telling him to do. It's like, dude, just go back to jail. Stop being a part of this. Even if you and Yasuko do love each other, you should be happy for her getting married to a guy that's going to provide for her, blah, blah, blah. And but he's like, I want to do one last job. He's like, no, I, while I'm out, I need to get to Katsutoshi. He's got to go down for what he did to me. I've been after him and like, I can't go back to jail without dealing with this. And also Katsutoshi has just captured one of their guys, Iwashita. Oh my God. This poor, this poor guy. dude, this guy gets it worse than anybody. And he's just a nobody. This is the first time we've heard his name. And then we just see them torture him to death. <laughs> yeah. He's like tortured like being beat the shit out of him on a boat and then getting dragged behind the boat. They start with by dragging him. Like they tie him up and they toss him off the boat to drag him behind. And then, yeah, they tie him up to a tree once they get to wherever they're going and they're all just like target practice with him. Yeah. Oh my God. And the way he spins whenever they shoot him. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's brutal. And notably, one of Katsutoshi's guys is against it. We see this guy, Nakahara, clearly not happy with any of it. Like, oh, he's, he's not participating, and he's upset. Yeah, yeah he, he doesn't even want to be watching it. So, at this point, I would say both Katsutoshi and Yamanaka are sort of in a berserker phase. They are spiraling the drain. Both of them are just... They're clearly in an endgame. They're not going to last a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So Katsudoshi does a drive-by shooting. He tries to go after Maroka. (laughs) Assassination attempt on Maroka number two. And it's when they're recovering the body of Awashita. Like, they go to pick up the body, and he does a drive-by shooting where, like, the police and the press are. Yep, this this is, like, hugely public. And it doesn't seem that well-planned, because they're just hollering 
firing guns randomly out of the side window. Yeah, it it, it actually does nothing for him. nobody gets killed. It's yeah. just violence and mania and so there's huge public outrage and the police finally have to crack down on the Yakuza. This is where they start to not be buds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this it's is where... Katsutoshi's fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is where we get the conversations like, hey, I saved your ass in the Korean War. Yeah, well, we don't need you now. Yeah, uh, the, the Korean War's done. Uh, th- that just ended. I think it, it was only a four-year war. I think it ended in 54, maybe 55. Uh, shoot, yeah, I don't know. I wish I did. I do know that the MASH television series lasted longer <laughs> than the actual war. That I did know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Katsutoshi, this is where he's hiding out in the A-bomb slums, Motomachi. Mm. And this is like, yeah, he's... it. it I, I feel like associating him with the A-bomb slums, and that's like where his hideout is, uh, it really underlines how he is the post-nuke mutant strain of criminality. Mm -hmm. So their plan is they're going to blow up Maroka and the racetrack with dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that could have been their plan at any point in time. (laughs) They didn't have to do all this other shit. But it's it's a gradual escalation. He's just been getting more and more out of control. And of course, this never takes place because Yamanaka shows up and shoots him. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't it, kill him. He gets him in the leg. He gets him in the leg. It's like this whole thing. As he's like freaking out. He yeah, he, he gets caught in the leg anyway. Uh, yeah. it looks like he's like trying to put his bodyguard in front of him. Uh they do tackle him and get the gun away from him. Yeah. And then it's more blowback. Now it's just all out gang war again. He sends his guy Asano to just shoot up a brothel. Yeah. This one's just real chaotic. They're they're like shooting naked ladies and stuff. Yeah, this is just a brothel. It's like it's one of Maroka's brothels, but there's not even anybody here. They're just shooting it up. I think it's it's Matsunaga's. Oh right. Or maybe it's Maroka's, because the thing is they had already sent, or Nakahara maybe had gone on his own to Matsunaga. Uh, to try and make peace over all of this because he's really not happy with any of the violence that's going down. Obviously, he's not on board with the blowing up the racetrack uh, <laughs> yeah. plan. So he goes to uh, Matsunaga trying to make peace with Maroka, but this brothel shootout has happened while he was there because obviously that's another thing he would not have wanted to be involved in. Yeah. Uh, so they execute Nakahara <laughs> Poor Nakahara. Oh. <laughs> he really didn't mean to do any of it. He's the guy who gets stabbed to death in the car. Right, yeah, yeah. So finally, they 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 find out about all of this stuff. Uh, obviously, the plan leaks with Nakahara talking to them, so they manage to get a hold of Katsutoshi, and they arrest him. He also gets a life sentence. Yep, and that is actually the last we see of him. Yeah, he's done. He has to go to jail. Uh, I, I think they're going to really keep a close eye on this one. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so now Maroka, he's got total power. Yep, he uh, did it. But now the police start to be like, well, maybe the we don't need these Yakuza anymore. And n- this is where it specifically states, now the police start to become the enemies of the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, they're like, hey, Maroka, we know Yamanaka is your guy. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. We know he broke out of jail. Like, well, 
<laughs> I don't know what happened to him. Uh, no, he's, he's, not, he's he's not even in Hiroshima. And they they shuttle him off to Kure again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where he's. This is that really strange bit where he's with uh, Yasuko and he's talking about his gun as his kamikaze plane. Oh yeah, right. It's like yeah, I see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna work out no <laughs> and shozo's trying to he's he's unrolling his charts he's like look i think you should just settle down somewhere with yasuko and get out of this business because i don't think you have the head for it man <laughs> this this my gun is my kamikaze plane thing is freaking <laughs> me out dude <laughs> but he's like no no you don't understand i oh i can't leave Moroka alone because I made such a huge, terrible mistake about him. Yeah, he, he, I, I'm so embarrassed with what I did. I can never live it down. And, and look on Shozo's <laughs> face here. He's just like... It's a real, like, uh, rubbing the bridge of the nose. Like, oh, man. I don't think you did make a mistake. <laughs> but Maroka calls. He, he phones up and he tells Yamanaka that uh takamashi or takanachi just got out of prison yep. and you know how he lied to you or it's it's weird he doesn't say how he lied to you he's like you trust me right you know that you know we we both had conflicting stories but it's mine that you believe right <laughs> yeah 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 you believe my words don't you don't you yes so big both so they he goes over Yamanaka obviously executes uh, Takanashi which man rough on Takanashi he he didn't do anything wrong no no he didn't he actually was a really good guy about it mm-hmm. uh so Yamanaka goes to Matsunaga and says hey, I just killed Takanashi He's like, man, what the fuck? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. you don't you get it? Obviously, it was always Maroka who was lying to you. Takanashi went to jail to help you out. Yeah, like, how did you not figure this out? And he's and the police are out in force because now the Yakuza are being cracked down on. So this high profile killing of a high profile guy, they're out in force. So he has to go hide out. Yeah. And we go to Yasuko and she's decided it's all Maroka's fault. And he feels that she says, Maroka, you should take the blame. This was you all along. And she's, she gets slapped again and she gives him another fucking death glare. It's like, Maroka, you better watch yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Yasuko puts on a black coat and a wide brimmed hat and Maroka gets fucking stabbed. <laughs> you wish it's yeah, too do bad wish. that she doesn't really get to do any of that stuff in this one. No, but this is quite a bit earlier than yeah. those, I guess. It was a few years before. Mm, I, I, I think don't know. It's, a, the, it's it's close to the same era. Yeah, because this is 73. Uh, she had already been in at least one of those uh, Stray Cat Rock ones, right? Wasn't that 70? You know, the, those, were all sef- those were all 70. Okay, so yeah, no, yeah the, these are the year before. Okay. Or the like uh, the the Scorpion series was seventy two to seventy three. So, oh yeah, so simultaneous this, with this, one would have come out. At least one would have come out by now. I think a couple at least. So anyway, she gives him the death glare, but she's not going to get him this time, unfortunately. And there's still what like five more of these movies. 
there's I think eight more. Oh my god! Because <laughs> there's also the new battles of without honor and humanity. Oh right. Which it's it's not a lot later. It's like two years later. They do another entire five movie series. <laughs> oh my god. So there's this bit where Yamanaka is like hiding out in a granary or something, and he keeps he's filling up his gun with flour. I don't, I don't understand about. this. <laughs> just I, I maybe it's just anxiety disorder manifestation. He just needs to do something. Yeah, maybe he's like like um maybe he's like flashbacking. We we didn't find out what Yamanaka did before this, but I bet he was in the war. Very likely. Although we know that he tried to be a kamikaze pilot and they wouldn't have him for some reason. He says it's because he was too young. Okay. So maybe he just, oh yeah, he was just too young to be in the war. So maybe it was just, he had a rough childhood Uh, uh, as a result of it. Because, you know, most people did. And also he lived in Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That'll mess you up. So we, we are coming to a guy who is from the beginning uh, very very damaged obviously like very visibly damaged in everything he does yeah so so he kills himself uh his gun is his kamikaze plane yep and that's uh, uh that's the end yeah of it's him. it's may 29th 1955 and this is where i realized like wow this has been three months all of yep. this shit has taken place over the course of three months <laughs> whereas the last one is like 10 years <laughs> yeah so again, we we close on another big funeral ceremony, a big lavish one for I Yamanaka really, this time. I really thought that Shozo was going to shoot this one up. And the yeah. look on his face, he looks like he thought he was going to, too. Yeah, because Yamamori is shooting his fucking mouth off again. <laughs> yeah, Yamamori, fucking guy like, oh, man, Muraoka had a really good guy just giving his life to save face for the boss. Sure wish I had a guy like that. Glares yeah. at Shoso. Yeah, sure wish someone would be so good as to kill themselves for me. <laughs> Shozo and Shoso's like, oh, dude. I fucking oh, dude. <laughs> this fucking Yakuza game is bullshit. Is but what yeah, he's thinking. Right. It's just wild that this kamikaze act has made him a hero, a war hero, but like a Yakuza hero now. He finally got to be the uh, kamikaze that he wanted to be. But he was treated like absolute dirt the whole time he was in the Yakuza with this guy. Even when he was doing all the hits and had the legend about him for being the great hitman, he was cleaning toilets for Muroka. Yeah, Yeah, they never treated him well. I'd say that's something I kind of missed when he did that first killing where he went to that guy's place and shoots him and guy's like i don't want to die and he's crying and it's very uh it's not much of a kill he he has a hard time pulling the trigger he's staring at him for a while and then he finally pulls it and you get in the voiceover that people started whispering about uh the the quality of his hits but it's like this was just some old guy in a suit yeah who who could not have potentially fought back it's just uh all of the legend is completely uh separate from anything he actually did or or anything he actually is like this guy yeah is not a legendary Yakuza, whatever no, he, that even means yeah he has this whole 
legendary aura, but we're watching him just be a fuck up who everyone treats like dirt and kills himself. <laughs> yeah, like this man has not does not make a good decision in the entire movie. Right. So Shozo, we get in voiceover. Uh, Yamanaka's name is still whispered as a legendary Hiroshima Yakuza. And then we see this busted fucking graveyard that's just like a lot of the the headstones are knocked over, broken in half. And he says, but no one visits his grave now. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's only the legend. They're not interested in the guy and no one was ever interested in the guy. <laughs> he, he was just a sacrifice to Yakuza legend. And uh, not the first or the last, as the narration points out. Exactly. We're you know we're only two movies in. We're going to see more of this happen. Yep. There's there's been a few Yamanakas, I bet. Oh, definitely. I mean, I feel like a lot of our guys in the previous one were Yamanakas if we had focused on them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Katsutoshi's kind of a Yamanaka. Well, completely. They they are mirrors of each other. Uh, Katsutoshi obviously more capable and more confident. Uh, you know he was already the son of a Yakuza boss, whereas uh, <laughs> Yamanaka never had anything. You feel bad no, for him. No. <laughs> he got to make out with Meiko Kaji like once. Well, it probably happened a few times. We only got to see it once. Hmm. <laughs> so that is the end of uh, Hiroshima Deathmatch, a.k.a. Deadly Fight in Hiroshima. Um... It's awesome. I, I do like it a little bit better than the first one, just in terms of it's a more coherent story. <laughs> yeah, we're not trying to cover all the bases. We're, we've already established all the bit players. Let's just focus on these like two or three guys. Yeah, And I like that. Yeah, it, it works well. I, I mean, I really enjoyed the first one. Uh, I, I think the first one is fantastic. It's just this one is a more straightforward story and you can kind of pick out the themes a little more easily. <laughs> it's not so like all over the place. Yeah. So, uh, do you have any, Oh, actually, uh, so the next one in the set is, uh, proxy war oh. battles without honor and humanity proxy war. Uh, this one, it, it's a much shorter one. I think, or a much, much shorter span of time. Okay. Maybe. I think, so we're, we're in 1960 already with this one. Oh. And the temporary boss of the Maroka family, Sugahara, gets assassinated while he's hanging out with Shozo. Uh-oh. And then there's like a really, uh, 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 a, a, a really embarrassing mishap at the funeral where someone vomits on his corpse. Oh, and this, the, the disrespect just sends everyone into a spiral. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this, sounds, this sounds like it's going to be another insane, ridiculous yeah. bullet filled ride. Mutant crime. So this being a box set, we could either do that one next or, uh, Alternately, next in the stack is Violent Streets, another Yakuza film. Uh, this is directed by Hideo Gosha, uh, best known for like Three Outlaw Samurai and Sword of the Beast. I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, but this one, it stars this guy, uh, Noboru Ando, who was an actual Yakuza who became an actor. Oh, cool. 
That's and it us. stars him. Yeah, that's kind of neat. He plays a retired Yakuza underboss. And then uh, a bunch of his old Yakuza guys show up and they want to take over his nightclub that he's running in his retirement. So they pull him back in and he has to fight for what's his. <laughs> he, he's thinking his he's back. And of course, there's a gang war going on. Of course. Necessarily. Violent streets. Yeah. So what do you figure? Do you want to do proxy war or violent streets next? Uh, I still think proxy war. I, I want to see more yeah. of this. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm loving these oh, yeah. Yakuza movies, but I want to see more Hell of yeah. like this this universe. Absolutely. The these are totally insane. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the premise of proxy war, the the <laughs> the opening things that does sound wild. <laughs> I'm just imagining like like the title cards June twelfth. 1960 first vomit dropped yeah Uh, that should be a good time sounds pretty fun all right so uh do you have uh any last thoughts before we head on to part two you know what uh yamanaka needed what he needed a ghost who would take him back through time so that he could teach his child self to be a better person because that would work out I mean, Yamanaka, I, I feel like he does seem to be someone whose uh, past is heavily compromised. He does seem like someone who's been extremely damaged through his timeline. Yep. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, on to part two. And we're back for part two, where we're talking about 2019's The Long Walk, a Lao movie by Matty Doe. Very interesting time travel thing i'm gonna go ahead and say that this is for me the most challenging movie that i've tried to discover or that i've tried to cover i've watched it three times and every time i actually feel like i understand less what's happening (laughs) i think a big part of it is you really need to understand the religion of it that that seems to be really really key. I don't know if you watched the director's introduction on the desk. Uh, I did, yeah, but the first I only did it before the first time when I right. should have done it after watching it once. She does specifically say that it is about religion, it is about local Lao religion and sort of the way uh, belief systems work there. And uh, there's obviously a Buddhist element to a lot of this. We're looking at reincarnation as sort of a closed loop in terms of uh it's it's reincarnation time travel but constantly being uh reincarnated as oneself because of certain failures of character (laughs) uh like our last film our protagonist here is one of those guys who cannot make a good decision although it's interesting in this one you don't know it for a while you sort of do you get a feeling of unease i think the soundtrack does a lot with that uh i know when i was first watching it you sort of seem like or you you feel like the guy you're watching your old man character i don't think he even has a name nobody in this has a name except for the young youngish girl the her name is lena uh yeah i'm looking at the I, i've got the uh the, the the imdb page open because there's also someone named kenji but that's it. That's not anybody important. Yeah, I, I don't know who it is, just, but yeah, yeah. Everybody else just has a title. But um, 
our old man in the first viewing, at least for the first, I don't know, half hour or so, maybe first hour, you don't feel like he's a bad guy, but the music is sometimes telling you he is. Uh, certain yes. things that he does, it'll just get very eerie. Like you'll get a horror sting or that low, uh, that, that sort oh. of eerie sound. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, and I can't make the noise. Yeah, not that you would want me to, but yeah, God yeah. No. Uh, no, but he, <laughs> it's it's a familiar horror noise that you'd probably know if you see much modern horror. It's in a lot of them. Just sort of that atmosphere sound, uh, and and you just know that something is wrong here. It's usually involving tea. That's that's the first time it happens. Yeah, yeah. he's making tea. It's blue tea, and he's using flowers, but he's just making tea. I yeah. don't know, man. And you look at it, and it's like, well, this doesn't seem sinister, but the music is telling me it's sinister. And then I, I would imagine that uh, the more you watch it, the more those scenes sort of stick out as, okay, we're kind of seeing signposts of what we're going to learn much later on. Yeah. Now, the thing that I didn't... The thing that shocked me the most on the second viewing is how actually early it's revealed that or like obviously hinted that i didn't just did not pick up on it that the old man isn't a good guy yeah Uh, in one of the first scenes like he opens up this padlocked room and he he finds this corpse there this woman Mm. who apparently uh cut herself really badly on this nail and Mm -hmm. For some reason, I didn't register that this was a locked room. I thought it's oh. just like he found his wife had died or something. See, I knew this was the village woman who, like, this is Lena's mother, I believe. This is Lena's mother. Uh, noodle lady is what I call her. Right, yeah, she had the noodle shop in town. Uh, I Yeah, that that is an element that, I mean, the first watch through, you know that there's something weird about it, because... You know, he, the police come to see him and he's like, no, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell you where she is. And like, well, we know that's a lie, but it's not necessarily clear the first time through that he was involved in it. It seems like it's potentially accidental, but at the same time, yeah. she's in this locked room in his house. How did she end up there? And yeah. I don't know if there's supposed to be the idea that we're seeing a later loop, right? Or we're seeing uh, some sort of loop that's already been affected by things that we'll see happen later on because he's already done it in previous timelines. Yeah. Uh, this we're learning uh, isn't the first loop. Uh, it's also not the last loop. There has been thousands of loops and it's not clear when we're going from one loop to another. Sometimes yeah. it is, but not always. Right. It's Groundhog Day, but as a horror and not in, you know, the the fucking Happy Death Day sort of way. It's a much more, you know, it's, it's about karma, it's car- cycles of karma and karmic retribution, obviously with the Buddhist element. But uh, it, it's... <laughs> uh it's also uh what's the other one i was thinking of um uh shit there there is a couple different points of references that i was thinking of as pretty key to this like obviously the groundhog day thing uh oh yeah 
Homestuck. Uh, we we were talking about it you know, with our shipping chart shit with the last one. Obviously, this has it's a null session. Yeah, th- this actually really reminds me of Homestuck in how it deals with time travel. Mm-hmm. It just it doesn't explain the rules to you. It's just here's what's happening. You figure it out. It's like it's not a scientific time travel. It's a personal emotional time travel. It's karma. Yeah. It's religion. It's faith. So. It's it's sort of about the soul of this guy and how it's just rapidly, not rapidly, I guess, but thoroughly being tainted by his incorrect decisions. But we don't know it. And just as he doesn't know it, uh, is, is the thing I said last week, the water you're in, you know, you, mm-hmm. the, the frog doesn't know it's boiling. Uh, he He's just slowly coming to realize over the course of the film, the person he's made himself into, but he's not aware of it like he does not know he's a bad guy yeah which is why we don't know yeah yeah uh, in the early parts of the film he's presented as a mystic uh so, yes. like a spirit medium uh, by, he... <laughs> the first like hour i was thinking of him as the vaping mystic <laughs> the vaping <laughs> is really key the vaping is super key and oh oh man I've got like a Pepe Silva chart of the vaping that I've just decided I'm not even going to do this. Yeah, because it's just impossible. It changes. Like he's always doing it in different ways. It's and man, the so smoke coming out of those nostrils. <laughs> in this one, yes. Yeah. But he only does it this way in this one scene. Right. It's so. I, I guess we have to really shout out the acting of this old man character. Um, yeah. The guy who. Oh, fuck. I, I didn't write his name down. Not the name. Uh, like I said, I have IMDb open, so it's it's a tough one to pronounce. Yeah, Yanawuti uh, Chanthalungzi, uh, I believe, is how you pronounce it. Something close to that. I will take your word for it. Uh, it, it it is a difficult name. I'm not familiar with Lao, so no. <laughs> can can only do so much. And he's not been in much stuff. Uh, he's really only been in a couple other movies. Oh, okay. Um... Yeah, because every scene he's in, he plays it slightly differently, ever so slightly, because like all of his mannerisms would be changed even just by like these little things that would have such a big impact on his life. Um, because it's because, well, also, we're we're seeing the decision echo 50 years down the line. Yes. Every time. So it's so diffused by the time it gets to him that uh there's there's an element of a lag of it getting to his understanding where he's changed his past and there's this um area of cognitive dissonance where he still has to learn what he's become you know what you know what else this reminds me of a really really better version of the uh Aston, ashton kutcher film butterfly effect oh yeah yeah way better version of butterfly effect uh but butterfly effect <laughs> edgy the same kind of rules <laughs> yeah similar rules where it, it is him going back into his own past and affecting his own extremely damaged childhood it's just that you know, in the butterfly effect, it's damaged, written in cursive on the forehead, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> this one's a, a little bit more reasonable. This one's coming from a more philosophical viewpoint. Uh, another interesting thing about this film, about the beginning of it, 
I knew it took place in the future, but I thought it was a post-apocalyptic future, and it's actually not. No, it seems there's there's a there are elements of dystopia. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's definitely he is still very much in a poor part of the world in the future. Except he always has been. Like we see him as a child, and he was always poor, and it was never a problem for him. That completely doesn't enter into it. Money is not something that is ever any sort of concern for him because he's sort of living feral on the edge of society for one <laughs> but well his family didn't a... want it yeah yeah because like is... well yeah money is a concern because of the medicine in the childhood but his like they didn't oh, want like, electricity that... even no, they're not no, interested they... in being coming uh becoming more modern Oh, no, they are, but not this way. Electricity isn't what they needed to oh, right. get. Oh, yeah. They want tractors. They needed a tractor to <laughs> yeah. be able to work this land. Like, they got electricity, and, and the guys, if you listen carefully, the, the workers are actually speaking English, and they're mm. like, man, what a shit show. I can't believe it. This is just going to make everybody's life worse when you think about it. Yeah, they're they're all aware that this is not really going to do anything, but it's what they're doing for their NGO. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's just they're a bunch of workers who have been sent to do this, and they're installing a power grid. But we never really see any use of this power grid. He doesn't even use it later in the movie. It, it it's just something that doesn't matter. He's got his own power. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the stuff with the chip. That he's got a government chip in his arm, which <laughs> is kind of dystopian. But like it is we, very dystopian. <laughs> we see so little of the future because he's so rural that we just occasionally see like buildings on the horizon that look futuristic. And other than that, it could be now. It, it could be now. Uh, it could be 20 years in the past. It could be Mad yeah. Max time. It, it's kind of timeless. Yeah, and I think that's part of the rural thing. Like, we talked about this as well with uh, the Unseen's Woods, uh, Forest of the Wolf, where you watch that and like, well, it could be 400 years ago, but it could be 1970. (laughs) Yeah, because aside from, like, him using technology to pay things, to pay for things, the technology is not at all a part of the story. Right, he's got a he's got a tap chip in his arm so he can <laughs> get paid or or pay stuff, and and I love the the digital display, how he he can pull up uh he he can like touch his wrist and pull up uh, uh the time. Yeah, like part of me is thinking, man, that'd be cool. Part of me is like, oh my god, I do not want Apple to have. No, to be that close to me. That would be extremely inconvenient. That's like, uh, there, there's, you've probably seen that those going around a while back. Someone who uh, realized their printer wasn't working, and they tried all the stuff. They reinstalled everything, added new ink, and just none of it worked. And they finally called Hewlett Packard, and they're like, "Oh, well, the the debit card on file expired, so we just turned off. We like manually disconnected your printer from functioning, like." So I'm now radicalized. <laughs> Imagine if you had a chip in your arm that was owned by Apple. It's like, well, you can't use your arm anymore because we you're in arrears. <laughs> or, oh my God, if you had like a media chip that like projected movies, but it was, but it was owned by Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, uh, just... you were just canceling vision. Not yeah. enough people used eyesight in the first week, so we're canceling it. With, with like lowercase i 
uh, <laughs> capital S site. Yeah. Of course. Oh my God. I didn't even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, there is that clear dystopian element, but he's so far outside of society that it's just not what we're focused on. So we have no idea what the actual future is supposed to be like, just that he's living this weird dystopian life of his own because of the way he's made it. Like he has created his own personal dystopia. Mm-hmm. He has to walk a very, well, well, the capital L long capital W walk to get to the nearest little outpost town to get his war half portion. Yeah. He, he's got to go get his uh, freeze dried noodle packages. looks like the sort yeah. of stuff you get at M&M meat shops. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it, it looks like it's all sous vide. <laughs> you get mm-hmm. uh, just noodles in a bag. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like astronaut food kind of. Yeah, which I guess is sort of futuristic element there as well. Yeah, um, but also like dystopian. I I can't imagine they're doing it that way because food is plentiful. Right. Yeah, and it's it, well. I I guess it's also just uh, uh, because they're very far away from anything. It's a good way to keep stuff from going bad. True. True. Very true. Good point. But yeah, uh, he's he's outside of society. He's like very distinctly far outside of society and intentionally. Yes. Like on his own rec- uh, on his own recognizance, he doesn't want to be a part of society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just uh, the opening scenes is just him going about his daily life. Basically, he scavenges. Uh, he sells what he scavenges, like he's the copper. Like, yeah, he f- he finds an old dirt bike, right? Yeah, finds a dirt bike, cleans up some of the parts, sells them, only gets a measly 400,000 gift, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, yeah. I don't know how. So do you, what, what's the, what's the currency? Uh, kip is what it's called. Kip currency. Now, I don't know if this is real or anything. I just think of the idea of a future where 400,000 of anything is absolutely nothing is just so on point. Well, the, the Laotian kip is uh considerably less than the canadian dollar i, I suspected uh, so four hundred thousand laotian kip present day is 27 dollars canadian oh my god i <laughs> said that in the present day 50 years in the future that's probably going to be worth that's going to be pennies yeah so it's it is very little <laughs> that's it's an extremely small amount <laughs> that's so clever <laughs> uh yeah and across the road the noodle place is shutting down because the noodle lady has gone missing mm-hmm. and and uh yeah it's this whole thing right and th- so this is clearly a point where we're seeing stuff sort of out of order because we will see him go to the noodle shop where she works and talk to her at another time don't we we do near the end of the movie yeah. where, but it still doesn't make sense for him to talk to her at the right. shop at any point in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Because I know there's the other part where obviously he runs into her daughter when she's working the shop just to kind of get rid of the, the food there and, yeah. you know, finish off the business before she moves back. Mm-hmm. That's how he ends up. That's how she ends up at his house. 
yeah, that's how he ends up capturing her. Although at the time, sometimes I don't know if he captures her. Sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, it seems like in the initial viewing, he isn't. That he is just helping her out and doesn't have any sinister motive. But obviously, a sinister motive develops through his past. Yeah, <laughs> just or yeah. or he had a sinister motive. His past version has a sinister motive, but when his present version went into that past, that other version's body, he didn't know about the sinister motive that he was already in the middle of doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really well, crazy. It's it's both the it is the butterfly effect as well as the Groundhog Day thing, where we're seeing the loops and we know that he's experienced a lot of loops, but he doesn't know that he's experienced all of these loops is, is very significant. And we don't know which version of him we're seeing at any given time. Yeah. Uh, they, they, with the vaping, they kind of give us a way to keep track of it, but as it is actually impossible. Mm -hmm, Cause sometimes he is malevolent, but a lot of the time he isn't there. Are, like very frequently, there are points where he is horrified by what he's found himself to do, but, he's kind of trapped in the loop he's already set for himself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, after dealing with, uh, after seeing him day, a day in his life, how he worked yeah. all that, did all that scavenging for God, like probably $5. Yeah. I would say five to 10 bucks was probably yeah. his take there. If that, um, God, <laughs> I didn't realize it would be that low, uh, <laughs> but we cut to, a child, and we don't even know at this point that this child is him, but it's him. Mm -hmm. uh, the boy doesn't have a name. Nope. Uh, he's just a boy. Yep, he's just a boy working with his uh, farmer dad and his ill mother, who the the sound of her coughs upsets me a lot because it's, it's not a movie cough. It's a real sounding cough. It's super realistic. And as well, just... As I was saying last week, the timing of this, it being a 2019 movie, but it totally seems like she has COVID. Uh, the, the way that she dies, the way that things go for her, it seems like a COVID death, but it's it prior really to it. It does. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. It is, obviously the movie did not have that in mind because the movie came out before COVID, but right. yeah, it, it just, it's gained this extra resonance by being just, just prescient enough. I mean, it's something you could have seen. It's a SARS variant. That's This is oh, something sure. that's been going on for a while. But yeah, that kind of gives it this extra heft, the way his mother is dying in a very familiar way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... So she sells the, the farm stuff by the side of the road, and sometimes he helps her, and sometimes he helps his dad. And his dad's a bit of a shithead. Well, sometimes his dad is a shithead. Sometimes yeah. he's okay. It's it's a little complicated whether or not his dad is a shithead. I kind of feel like his dad is always... I mean, we we know in every timeline his father abandoned him. It's just in some timelines it's not clear whether it was as a reaction to him being a feral little evil child or whether it was just money. Or the yeah, thing uh, with the where he beats the wife because of the money the 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 hidden money yeah um it's it, the money that he's that he finds and what happens to it is one of the major things that affects who he's going to become 50 years later yeah yeah and, and a lot of different things happens to this money it turns out mm -hmm. uh, 
so as he's walking, because he this kid also doesn't really actually help anybody with the farm or with no. the selling or with anybody. It's going to be a running theme for this guy. Although, to be fair, I don't understand what it is exactly that he's supposed to help with all that much. It doesn't look like there's that much work to do. Like, well, how, how is he supposed to help with the selling? There's not a lot of people coming down this dusty road. The farm, there's not a lot of farm work to do. I mean, he's planting yeah. that row that like, I, I guess this is a point where the dad is monitoring him and he's supposed to be helping him plant and he's just doing it really slowly and sort of staring off into space. But like, it's, it's like my backyard uh, garden. There's, there's not that much that you don't need a second person right, to, to right. do this gardening. <laughs> but you do need to train this kid how to do it so that he can do it someday and get him used to the idea, I guess. I guess. Certainly it didn't work because we know it he's didn't. not doing that in the future. No, he, he only buys takeout. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he never learned. The only thing he learned how to make is tea. And tea. only quotes. Tea and quotes. Tea and quotes. And because it wasn't his parents who taught him how to do that. Right. Uh, so as he's going, basically both, and also both of the parents are like, no, go help your other parents. Stop hanging around me. Right. This is what I'm saying. Neither of them <laughs> really need his help. They're just wanting to put him to work and he's not able to do it and he doesn't want to do it. And it's like, just let the kid go wander. Let him do his walking. Well, he does do his walking and he finds uh, a dead wo- or dying. Dying. Not dead Woman, yet. She's been hit by a truck or something. Like, we see trucks just speeding down this road occasionally, and mm-hmm. it's after he's passed by one that he finds her, like, off in sort of forest clearing that she's been sort of thrown from the road. Yeah, it, it's not super clear what happens to her, but there's, like, some a piece of wood or, like, a pole or something through her neck. Yeah. And... I kind of wonder if that dirt bike in that, that he's slowly disassembling bits of and selling is hers oh that's something that occurred to me that it it could be she was riding this she got hit and you know the bike went into the mud she went off the road and you know got the you know impaled on this uh stick because he's always sort of working through all her stuff he gets her backpack and he takes the picture and he's sort of gradually selling off all the shit he finds yeah yeah um yeah that could be that could be the bike yeah yeah um yeah so uh, he holds her hand as she dies and then he kind of just leaves her there and doesn't really do anything after that yeah this is sort of weird i mean i i don't know how old he is as a kid a little too old to have not told anyone about this or done anything about it uh it speaks to an existing flaw in the character yes that he never told anyone or did anything about this and this is before he encounters his future self i think because it, ha- it has yes. to be because yes because this is ghost, when the ghost enters yeah the ghost doesn't even exist before this <laughs> i mean unless there is a scene in which he comes back to right after he met the ghost and tells young him not to tell anyone in a loop that we never saw because it happened too long ago 
That, that's sort of the problem that you, you encounter with this movie is that there is any number of loops that we don't see. So we know that he's been fucking around in his past way more than we're ever going to see. So the stop gaps that he put in for himself are innumerable. There, there could be all sorts of things that he's done that we're just not seeing. Yeah, but we also – the funny part is we also see that they never work the way he wants them to. Yeah, so, yeah. Like he's, he's always he's, blowing it. He's <laughs> fucked – so so he may have done that, and like he's fucked up things that he doesn't even remember fucking up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There, There's no question that a lot of what he's done he doesn't remember because it's a different him. Yeah. He, he just keeps being this new version of himself that – is damaged by all the other cycles of uh, karmic retribution that he just has never resolved. Mm-hmm. But I feel uh, like this is sort of the original sin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this right here uh, of him basically leaving the body, not telling anyone about it, coming back later to loot the corpse uh, multiple times. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. One go. This is why I'm thinking the bike is hers, that it's just the last bit of paraphernalia that he's selling <laughs> off. Because w- when he sells it to the guy and he gets his measly like 25 bucks, the guy says, you know, you've been parceling this thing out to me in bits and pieces for so long. I don't know why you didn't just like bring me the whole bike. That would have been way better. But he also mentions that like I've 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 given you more money for all these bits and pieces than it would have for the entire bike at this point. I'm like, yeah, that's the point, man. <laughs> <laughs> so after, yeah, right after she dies, uh, he sees her ghost at the stall. Yeah. Uh, uh, where, where the mom's where the mom is working. The, yeah. Yeah. And like, he's scared at first and he realizes that the mom doesn't see this ghost. Yeah. He's the only one who can. Because he has the personal connection with her because he was there with her in her final moments. Yeah. And as well, she's trapped on Earth because religious rites, the Buddhist specific uh, Lao religious rites are that cremation is how you set the soul free. Right. And as long as that's not done, she she's stuck here. But and none of that. I, I, yeah, she's stuck. And at this point, I don't think he buries her not yet well i don't Uh, think he buries her at all because he goes to bury like there's the point where he says he's going to bury her here and she says no she's like no and she leaves like the ghost won't stay with him there so i think he just leaves her in that grove whereas the other victims end up in the field this grove is actually different from the grove with the other victims this is like her grove i guess so you're right i don't think he does bury her ever yeah i think he leaves her permanently and it's because the the grove where he buries them is his mom's favorite spot which is obviously why it gets tied into the whole i mean spoilers ish but we kind of alluded to it he sort of becomes a serial killer depending on which future he's in and this is his burial ground where he leaves all of his corpses but, and he has like he hangs out with these with the ghosts of the people that he's killed in this uh, grove. Except those ones are only there; they are anchored to that spot. Whereas yeah. she's able to travel the road with him, which is why I think she's not buried there. Oh yeah, yeah. 
She's the only one that can travel with him, whereas all of the others are anchored to that spot and they just kind of lurk eerily in the bushes in a circle around him. And there's way more of them right from the beginning than it seems like there should be. Yeah, especially since we don't (laughs) even realize why they're supposed to be there to begin with. Yeah, because at the first time I kind of just figured this is my he's saying this is my mother's favorite spot, but I guess it has to have already been a, 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 a graveyard, but no <laughs> no i read in the in the pamphlet that comes with the disc or the little hmm. leaflet thing the idea that ghosts aren't anchored to time like humans are so if you hmm. do something that creates a ghost that ghost now can exist in any timeline yeah i, I uh, think that's definitely what's happening with her is that she is existing at all timelines at all times yeah and, and she's witnessing like every version of him and I like her. She's always like, she's, she doesn't speak, but you can tell from her face that she never actually approves of anything that's going on. Yeah, she is always very troubled. There, and especially any time we get near the grove. Yeah, uh, the not not her death grove, but the the burial grove. Mm-hmm. Although she's also reluctant to go to her own death grove. Yeah, for obvious reasons, yeah. I suppose. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, no, we're getting so far ahead. It's hard to talk about this movie in a linear fashion, though. Yeah, yeah. This one isn't that linear in terms of how it works. You you kind of have to follow the tangents as you get to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we come back to the future present, and the cops are talking to the old man about the noodle lady. Like, right. hey, and it's it's where we establish that they know he is, or at least that he is locally viewed as a mystic. Yeah, which uh, turns out he is actually not a mystic at all. (laughs) Well, he is and he isn't. He is able to talk with the spirits, but mainly it's because he's controlling most of them and has a direct interaction with them that people don't know about. But it's interesting that he is widely viewed as one and that everybody kind of accepts that about him and has no suspicions. Like, the police are there, and we have already seen this lady's body in his house. So we we should be suspicious as an audience. But at the same time, you're like, no, they're they're not suspicious of him. They just want his help. And it kind of suggests that maybe he's helped them before. That's <laughs> kind weird. of weird. That's the implica- that's the that's kind of the thing feeling I get. Like mm. police have used like psychic advisors. Yeah. Um <laughs> They they obviously don't like to talk about it, but it has happened, and yeah. and yeah, it that's... is a thing. Mm-hmm. So and... it, it totally seems like that's what they're calling on him for, and there's no suspicion whatsoever. And then when he tells, so like it's like we know that she's dead. So if, then he starts telling them about her, and it's like she had dementia; she would always be wandering alone. She needed someone to look after her. She was super skinny and all that. Um, mm-hmm. And Which it's like, that one can be read in two ways. Yes. It sounds like he's sort of scolding that, you know, no one was taking care of her, but it's also an admission that he had taken her in and was holding her and he was quote unquote taking care of her, at least in some versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can also be read like, and I think this is how the cops read it is like, he's looking into the spirit world and this is what he's right. seeing. Yeah. He's getting this directly from her. 
and as well as obviously having some local knowledge of having seen her wandering the roads yeah. quite a bit as a thing that he personally does all the time yes yes um <laughs> And, and that's how I read it. Like, oh, he's getting oh, this yeah. info from the spirit realm. Not, oh, he's getting this info because he did the killing. Well, <laughs> yeah. Or no, he didn't do versions. the killing. Yeah. No, she. Mm, she committed I, suicide. Yeah. In this yeah she committed suicide one. in captivity. Yes. But it depends. <laughs> it depends. In this one, she did. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so the the cops are like, okay, well, we really want to find the body before the daughter gets here. Uh, right, because so that, related to the rituals, you want yeah. to be able to set her spirit free. Mm-hmm. And he he says what is – one of his catchphrases is, I can't help you. Yeah, I can't help you, which is – it makes sense as his catchphrase because – what he never realizes is that he can't help himself and he keeps trying to, he's only ever trying to help himself and he keeps failing at it. And if he were able to help others, he would be able to help himself. But mm-hmm. since he is incapable of helping others and he's so rooted in his own self and trying to help himself that it progressively and continuously makes him more unable to ever help another person. Yep. Um, I actually, after my third viewing of this, I actually have a theory that he is dead the entire time, and all we're watching is him in, I guess, I guess hell. It's sort of like it. it I like. I don't know if it's necessarily in that sense because, again, it, it has to do with yeah, uh, not like, specifically Lao and Buddhist yeah. religion that I, I can't speak with, speak to, and any yeah, kind of authority. But yeah, in a sense, it, it feels like he is working out his karmic retribution over and over and over again and trying to get it right, uh-huh. uh, which is sort of an aspect of reincarnation. So it has to be post-death. And she says she's seen him die over and over and over and over again. Uh-huh. So obviously, we're watching another loop where he has died long ago. Yeah, It's just he's alive again because he's re- rerunning the 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 simulation right um so as soon as the cops get away he uh opens up the closet and cleans up her blood stains yeah it's like and, oh, i better take care of that <laughs> and he hammers the the nail so that nobody else could ever get caught on that again mm-hmm. and then he uh uh, he, he does something that I for, thought for sure would get into the Yakuza movie, but there's enough of it in this one for both. He takes off a lot of pinky finger. He he has, and I think it's this first time, it really fluctuates the amount of them we see. Yes. Because this first time, there's a few. There, there are a few. Um, Whereas sometimes we go back and it's the first one that he's putting in. Uh-huh. Like we, we come to it later and I believe his mother's finger and we see is the first one. Yeah, uh, he he's doing this whole thing where he like cleans it, and I thought this was a mystic ritual. I'm still not cluing in that this guy's bad news. It is a mystic ritual, though. It's just oh. it's more of a serial killing, but it's it's to control them. He has the finger bone, and the finger bone is how they are owned by him. How he controls their ghosts. How he's able to keep them as his spirits. Ah. But so I, they belong to him. He's collecting souls with these fingers. That's what these represent. And that's why it's creepy when you see 
a lot of them in some of the versions when he opens it i'm like oh my god there's like 30 in there yeah uh, yeah like in this one there's like six or seven yeah and we don't know the context of it yet no. although we do see that there's this bundle and like that's kind of creepy but it also seems like it's just a mystic ritual he's this guy who helps them on to the afterlife but no 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 we he haven't does the learned about of that <laughs> yeah he's never letting them get to the afterlife well his whole thing uh, is he doesn't want to let anyone go because if he does they'll right. all leave him that's why i think that's why he ends up taking lena way 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 down the line mm. yeah in like an alternate version of the version after he met her which i it's sort of all generating out of the original childhood trauma of both of his parents abandoning him or his dad abandoning him his mother dying uh-huh. he can't bear to be left alone and then it gets even worse when the old man and ghost who are supposed to help him also fuck up his life and end up leaving him so yeah, although it's weird they leave him and they don't leave him because obviously the ghost is always with him but the old man is sort of the the the, the appearances of the old man must be really strange to him because it's going to be so different each time and the old man is probably going to be a completely different person each time he sees him yeah because he's grown into a different person from the changes he made Mm -hmm. whereas to this kid there he's probably only seen this old man like a few days or a few weeks apart yeah and he's gonna have all sorts of weirdly different intensities and it's always going to be played like he's trying to help him because in his mind, he is. He just doesn't know the damage he's doing. Mm-hmm. So the first time travel, uh, it's not even super clear that time travel is what's happening at first. We just mm-hmm. see the ghost watching uh, the boy at the mother's stall. And then we hear the old man saying, that's my mother. And he's just kneeling beside her. Right. And there's a thing, I, I think it is, it's either this one or the next one where he says, all those other times I was there, did I see an old man with you? Yep, no, that's this time. It's weird that he's asking her instead of trying to remember if he did himself. No. His own past is a mystery to him. Oh, yeah, there's that. But no, he's asking her if when this scene happened 50 years ago, if she remembered him being there. And then she, right. shakes, she shakes her head. Right. So... This is the only time he time travels responsibly because he doesn't interfere. Yeah, although it's strange. I like. I assume this is maybe the very first original time travel, like the the first one that ever happened, and the one that gives him the kernel of the idea. Because it's where it's like, so am I with you in the past or what? It could be. It could be the very first time. Or it could also be the first time for this version of the guy. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. This is his first time yeah. in terms of like, he has never done this before. And it's what gives him the idea to affect his past. So the, like the first time he interacts with the past is not with the child, right? It's he breaks into the house at night. Uh, he, he goes, well, he just home. wakes up in the past. <laughs> well, after, after walking down the road, I think, I don't know if he went to the past or not that time, but it is pretty much right after this. Right. Um, Because he ends up accidentally in the past in his home and he breaks that porcelain 
uh, figure. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't realize he's gone into the past. He thinks he's just going back home, and this is his like present day house, but it's a little bit different, and he's kind of confused about it. But he's like, "Oh shit, this isn't broken." But then he breaks it. <laughs> well, it, in the previous version, we see that case, and this thing isn't broken in the future yet. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um. The, the, this little porcelain figure is another one of those things that you really have to keep track of to try to find out what reality you're in, but it's possible. Yeah, very important signpost because it's sort of the first thing he interacts with directly in the past. So he, he ends up breaking the thing because he gets startled by his, dad. his parents being yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, uh, oh, um, I, I, I'm in the wrong house. I'm really sorry. I'm going to get out of here. Uh, wow. Really sorry. This is embarrassing. Bye. And he's and the dad out. freaks out. Yeah, the dad is like really aggressive. Oh yeah, uh, like he's like you're eating our food. We we can't don't eat our fucking food. This is kind of where we figure out that they're starving in this timeline. Yeah, yeah, they they have kind of nothing, which makes sense. They have this tiny little hard scrabble farm, and they have uh, a tiny little uh, roadside stand where they sell it. And we're not seeing. We never see people go past. <laughs> One time we see someone buying something at the stall. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, this is nowhere that this is happening. Yeah. Well, it's a long walk from any sort of civilization. Mm-hmm. Like, like the shitty outpost is probably, feels like it's got to be a whole day's travel. Yeah. And there's not many people that live there. It's a really tiny little fucking uh, outpost, like you said. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he gets the bum rush. He he takes off and he feels really bad about it, but it's also very exciting. It's like, oh, hey, I can affect my own past. Yeah, because he finds in his pocket, uh, he accidentally took the arm from the figurine when it broke, like it was still in his hand. Mm-hmm. And then when he went back to his house, he found that the arm of the figurine that was whole is now missing. But he can fit it right back in there perfectly. Yep. So he's like, oh. We'll glue that back together and go back to the past and we'll mend the past. Yeah, we'll just glue. Because th- <laughs> it's it's both symbolic that like, I'll mend this thing, but I'll also mend my own past. Let's start fixing things. We could have a better life. Yeah. We see the, bu- the boy go back to uh, go back to the ghost girl's corpse. And this is where he steals the photo from. I think it's like her passport. Yeah. Uh, which, you know. Take the passport, take it to the police, say, hey, I found this person in this place, but no. No, he, he's he's collecting her. Yeah, he is. Uh, so he, he gets that photo and he keeps that photo in like a place of pride for the whole time. It's It becomes sort of the main feature of his uh, trophy case, I guess. That's what it turns into. And pretty much it's already a, a trophy case the first time we see it because there's a bunch of fingers in there. Yeah, yeah. He also finds a bunch of money in the girl's purse. And this is important. Yes, extremely crucial. And it's his personal advice to himself in the past that really screws him over on this. Yeah, so what what normally happens, what would happen if he didn't time travel, is that the kid would hide the money in the bag, the mother and father would find it, they would talk about what they're going to do, the dad would leave to go work in the city the mom would die of fucking let's call it COVID 
Yeah. So the, yeah, the, that's the default. The dad. Yeah. The default is the dad uses the money to establish himself in another town and never comes back. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty shitty. And he, he doesn't want that to happen. I mean, he doesn't care if the dad goes away. Yeah. Dad kind of sucks. He has no love lost for him, but it's also a matter of if we had that money, I could pay for medicine for my mom. So we'll just keep that money from getting to dad this time. Yeah. So um, the second time travel that he does, he, he introduces himself, kind of introduces himself to the boy. It's like, don't worry. I can see the ghost too. Um, yeah. I'm here to help you with things. First thing you need to do is give that money to your mom. Don't let your dad find out about it. Use a bunch of it for medicine. Yeah. Tell her to hide it, which I, I don't know about you, but when I was watching the first time, I knew exactly where this was going, mm. that the dad I, was going to find it, that he was going to beat up mom and that he was still going to have the money. I didn't. Oh, I knew it, it immediately. It's like, oh, no, I, this is such bad advice. Hiding money from dad is going to totally blow up in your face. One of the things that I think about it in terms of this money ending up with dad and him leaving anyway and mom still dying in pain is that he can't affect anyone else's past but his own. So he can ruin his future by going back to his past and giving himself bad advice. But everything that he does, everyone else is still going to have the same outcome that they were always going to have. He can't change what is going to happen to his mom. He can't change what his dad is going to do because they aren't him. Mm -hmm. So nothing he does is ever going to affect those two outcomes, the way his mother dies and the way his dad leaves. Yep. Uh, like the details will change, but the end result is going to be the same as something he points out, actually. Yeah. But while this is going on, uh, in his present day life, he is, he meets up with Lena, come to town because the noodle girl has been missing. Yeah. And her is mom is missing. Dead. Yeah. Well, they, they're sure. They're sure they she's know dead. she's dead. Yeah. And she's sort of there to pick up and kind of hoping that they find the body so she can have a proper funeral and everything and this is where she's like she tells him like yeah no i'm just getting rid of all the food you you don't need to pay i don't care yeah so uh she she tries to recruit him to do basically a seance mm -hmm. and he does like the most half-assed fake seance and and basically writes her a letter and then he just leaves and she's like that's it he's like yeah you paid for song and dance it. Yeah. I can't uh, actually help you. Right. Well, at first he just defaults to, ah, I can't help you. And he's yeah. like, really? Come on, just, you could do something. And he does his little song and dance. And it's like, I told you I can't help you. But he could. He, he's completely capable of helping her. He just doesn't want to because it, uh, it, it means one less trophy for him. Uh, he doesn't want to give up her uh, mom. Exactly. So she storms his house the next day because he wrote something down on a piece of paper and gave it to her and said, don't open it. Do not read it. But she did. And, yeah, and she opens it up and it's, you are Lisa Simpson. <laughs> what the fuck, man? No, I'm not. No. I'm Lena Simpson. <laughs> but no. <laughs> no, it not. says, your mom is not here. Yeah. Which is a lie. <laughs> yeah. His mom, her mom is specifically here because he's keeping her here. Yep. Uh, but he's... I don't really understand how they get to this point, but somehow he ends. She ends up living with him. 
Yeah, she's just staying there. I, I guess because there's just literally nowhere else to stay. This isn't a place with a hotel. Yeah, well, uh, he's yeah. got room. He's got an extra spare room. Uh, don't ask about the spare room. What's what's what that spare room has been used for in the past? But yeah, I've got a spare room that you can stay in. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's forever, probably, maybe. Yeah, uh, it's interesting though. He doesn't seem to have nefarious intentions here. Maybe no, I don't think he does. I feel like at least the version of him that initially meets her and is interacting with her has no sinister intentions toward her because I don't think he preys on healthy people. Mm. I, I think this is a certain version of himself that considers himself like a, an angel of mercy. He, he's the angel of mercy serial killer type where he's putting people out of their misery. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's... exclusively the way he does it. And that kind of tracks with the initial uh, mercy killing of the mother, which is just a huge disaster that kind of yeah. generates this whole mess. Yeah. So I feel like she isn't on his radar as a victim because she is well. Yep. But as things go on, he becomes more gnarled in on himself and he just the mercy stuff sort of loses its luster and it's not about that anymore yeah so uh so then he goes back in time and tells the kid yeah hide the money from the dad and all that and she's she's still living with him when he gets back but when he gets back he finds the cabinet is cracked and he's like what happened? Why is the cabinet cracked? When did this happen? And she's like, it's literally always been like this. Yeah, it's it's always looked that way. And she is a little less friendly with him mm-hmm. in this loop. Uh, there There is a sense that he's been weirder to her, even though he doesn't remember it and doesn't know it. There's a bit more of a tension between them. Yep, because we are now at least one loop removed from the initial meeting. Yeah, I think a couple. Uh, it probably a couple, yes. Uh, so he realizes that whatever he did in the past has had this echo that destroyed this cabinet. So he goes back and he finds that, yeah, the father found the hidden money and beat up the mom and took off with it. Yep. So he, <laughs> trying to make it better, he goes and talks to the kid is like, yeah. I'm sorry this happened to you. It's uh, it's a little different from what happened to me, but you know, you'll get the end result is the same, so you'll get the hang of it. Yeah, we'll we'll figure this out. So, what we're gonna need to do? We, we're gonna make your mom some tea. Yeah, some medicine. Now, here's the thing: one of these will ease the symptoms. Two of these will put her to sleep. Never, ever, ever do more than two. And of course, here's where I knew what was gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've already established the way these things are going to happen. It's a monkey paw sort of yeah. thing. Uh, so the it's sort of a poison and sort of a medicine. It does ease the pain, but it's not going to heal her. It's just uh, it's it's something that can take the pain away temporarily uh, or overdose yeah. and kill her. Yeah, yeah, you can overdose on it. Oh, quite easily. Also on this timeline where. Uh where Lena's a little bit colder to the guy. This is where she finds the fingers. Right. And it's where she finds a lot of them. Uh, yeah. There's way more than eight this time around. I think that's the one where we see the most of them other than potentially the one where she's tied up. Yeah. 
uh, where I don't know if we even really see much of it there. Like things are much darker and much more destroyed. Uh, the house is very run down in that version. Yeah, yeah. Another thing is that the house is always different. The, the furniture is in different places every time. Sometimes the cabinets are in the closet. Sometimes they're out. Sometimes the, the closet doesn't even have a padlock. And uh, we'll see progressively filthier yeah. like a lot more dirty dishes that have never been cleaned and just broken shit everywhere mm-hmm. and like some of them it's lit up beautifully and some of them it's just a burned out husk yeah yeah uh one of them it's literally a burned out husk yeah it, yeah by the i think it's the final yeah. loop it is just burnt uh the the house sort of reflects the cleanliness of his soul uh, the the way that it it is deteriorating and burnt down by the end. The house of Dorian Gray. Yeah, it's it's a real Dorian Gray home. There's so much so, going on in this movie. There's there's a lot there's a lot to to pull at. So obviously it it comes around to look, mom is not getting better. We're going to put her out of her misery because we can't help her. Yeah. Yeah, this is what we But what we need to do is take that finger and then she can keep she can be with us forever. You see how it works with the ghost? Mom will be just like that. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be great? It's actually something that the kid says at one point is if she's dead or if she's dead, she won't be sick anymore. And then the guy mm-hmm. just runs with that. And then Because it's it's what's affected him, and then it's him having that thought as a kid developing all the way up to him. 50 years and then later. he's like oh and i can just make this thing i thought of as a kid happen yeah i thought about that and it's like oh yeah that'll work great so he goes through with that and the kid is not happy about no, it the kid right is... away like from the beginning yeah well even as he's explaining to it he's like you you understand don't you and the kid's like no i don't it's like you will no. when you get older <laughs> which big mistake yeah. uh it, it was a very bad impulsive decision so they killed the mom and the kid freaks out and hates him and uh, this is when he goes to when he returns to the future it's really fucked yeah up. it's things are bad things are bad uh he gets to the he gets back to his house oh i guess we skipped the part where lena leaves with her girlfriend to go back to the city right right in i, I think that's right before he goes back to to kill the mother that is, that's immediately mercy before, yes yeah yeah, because yeah, that's that's the thing that changed. That's the other big thing that changes in this loop. So right, because she's already gone, but then he comes back and she's back there. Yeah, she's back there. <laughs> so it looks like the house is abandoned, and there's all kinds of uh, bloody saws and hatchets and medieval torture yeah. implements. And well, it looks like he's just been cutting people up for a while, and it's it just like the kitchen is completely filled with dirty dishes that he's never bothered to clean. He's obviously become extremely feral in this version. Yeah, so he opens up the padlock and finds surprise, she's still there. She did she leave chained him. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's chained up. She's much like the uh, the old woman and her mother. Yeah. She's uh, chained up in exactly the same way. And he still has enough of the innocent version of himself that he's horrified by this. Yeah. So he begins fixing up the house and trying to make it better so that it's like she wasn't ever there. <laughs> to which she asks him, it's like, fix it up for who? Me or you? Yeah, and also, like, are you going to let me go? 
he's like, yes, yes, absolutely. I, I just, just, I need you to understand what's happening here. There's been a whole thing that I, it's hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, but it's very important that you understand so that you don't think I'm a bad person. Yeah, that's key to him. Yeah, he he wants to. It, it is all self-preservation, and it's all. Like everything he does is self-serving. Mm-hmm. That that's ultimately sort of what taints him and what uh, causes all of these problems is that everything he does is self-serving, and he never does anything for another person that isn't for himself. Yeah, <laughs> we can slot this one in anywhere because it doesn't really matter. But there is a flashback where the boy is walking down the road with the ghost. And this woman with like a nice fancy car pulls up and is like, have you seen my daughter? And shows an iPhone video of the ghost lady. And the boy's like, right. nope. Nope. Never heard of her. And the ghost is there with him. And like, again, it's her just shaking her head like, man. Yeah. <laughs> Making the wrong decisions, right? Just all the way. Yeah. So uh, I assume he does this in every version. Yes, uh, I, I every single version. Is... I think. Yeah, it has to be because she's with him always, yeah. and that, that's clearly the decision that he has never undone. That he's he's never had the wisdom to undo. Mm-hmm. So, the old man is trying to uh, foolishly just pave over the psychological scars that he's inflicted on this woman, and she's not having it. She uses her newfound. Temp- possibly temporary freedom to steal a knife and hide it hmm. in a pillow. Right. And he does find it later and he's not mad, but he is hurt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she ends up using it to stab him and that's how she gets yeah. away. Yeah. And he's like shocked. He can't believe she yeah. would do this. Well, this is what I mean. He's not mad about it. He's just like, he's hurt. He, he yeah. can't believe it. <laughs> It's like no, but I'm a good guy. I don't understand. That was the I'm other. I'm not guy. actually the bad guy. That that was the other me. Why don't you understand? It's, like th- it's different because it's this me. Yeah, I thought I explained all this. Uh, <laughs> again, just he he's too involved in himself to recognize anyone else's needs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, the ghost woman helps him helps him get up and. As he leaves the room, this is a really cool shot. Like we can actually see the timeline shift here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a really eerie moment. Yeah, and he sits down and he starts smoking a cigarette. First time he's ever done that. Yeah, because he's always vaped previously. Yep, and he goes back. He goes back into the room, and the ghost and the child are sitting there, and it's like it's basically like, okay, guys, we need to have a fucking meeting here. Yeah. Okay. Family meeting. Uh, we gotta do something different. I, I, uh, things have gotten really out of control. I think I might have to kill myself in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> the child's like, hey, she, this girl told me that you hurt her, and it's like, no, I didn't do it, but you're going to. And he's, yeah, and like, no, that's something you did. It wasn't me. You did it. Yeah. And uh, he's like, he, he's dissociated himself that, like, no, no, I'm not the bad guy. Uh, different me was the yeah, bad guy. Yeah. No, that's what you're going to do. You're the evil one. I'm the good one. And the kid's just like, I don't want to be this way. Please help me. Yeah. Don't make me turn into you. This, you've done this. And he's like, okay. I got I know the how answer. we're going to do this. 
I, I know the answer is so he ties him up and he burns the house down with him inside it. The fucking <laughs> screams of that child. Holy shit. It's horrifying. Oh my God. Wow. Like yeah. the sound in this movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Very, very good sound design. Not, yeah. Like not just the soundtrack, although it is really good, but how they use voices. I've never heard screams well, like and this how, and, and the coughing. And, and, and the ambient sounds and just like I mentioned with the music, how it clues you into things that are not flush and you don't know it. Like you're watching them and they seem fine, but on a second watch, it's like, okay, yeah, no, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, after setting out, no, Oh, right. There's a bit before he burns down the house. He goes to the noodle late store with Lena's mother. Lena's mother is there in the timeline that he right. captured Lena. How the hell? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting one where I think because that's the version where he's the most damaged and he's not doing the mercy killings anymore. So she wouldn't be on his radar anymore because that's not what he's about. He is just about collecting souls. This is the one where he is a true villain. Right. Oh, right. And then he even asks her, is like, why did I choose you then? And she's like, I don't yeah. fucking know. It's like, why are you why? having this conversation with me? Yeah. Cause it's just like, I don't know your past. You don't know your past. <laughs> So this is where he goes to the ghost and they go to the grove and she kind of explains to him. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. So after, yeah, after he burns down the house, he goes to the future and yeah, the house is a rotted husk that's overgrown with vines. Yeah. And he's dying from blood loss. And yeah, he goes to the grove. Because he got stabbed by yep. Lena. He goes to the grove and the ghost is there and she's like, you know... <laughs> he starts talking for the first time in the film and she's basically like it's amazing cool because he's reached the end of this cycle yeah. something has killed him so it's like all right let's uh let's go over this game play by play let's uh show you where you went wrong so here's let's see if maybe you could do better next so time. here's the thing you didn't ever do not even once you never he, he, he's lamenting not even once <laughs> Did he pay for trucks? <laughs> well, he's all <laughs> Tim Meadows and yes. And oh man, that movie's so good. Not even once. <laughs> <laughs> Best musician so, biopic ever. Oh, work of art. <laughs> Way better than the Freddie Mercury one. Oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, Miles better than Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, the uh, she explains to him like you never let me go you know if you had ever just given me a proper burial you know done the selfless act none of this happens but you've never done it yeah you just never get better yeah and he's all like well i couldn't have stopped you from dying and she's like yeah but that's not the point of this yeah and you know i i I loved you for holding my hand and comforting me while I was dying. It's just you never did the right thing after that. That's not the problem. Not saving me wasn't an issue. It's that you didn't do the right thing after not saving me. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, okay. So I, so did the kid ever die? He's like, she's like, just, just this one time. One time. <laughs> but I've seen you die so many times, thousands of times now. Yeah. 
and, and he's <laughs> like, "Okay, well, will you will you stay with me, hold my hand until I die?" No, no. she just straight up no. no. Gets up and walks Can't away. Do it. Yeah, and like, no, that's that's not what I'm here for. You you're you're going on another loop now. Maybe next time you can do it better. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And uh the final shot is her getting two fresh oranges to be friendly with the kid again. Yep. Just like and and she puts on a smile and she's like, Well, the kid is still salvageable. The version of him that she's dealing with at the end of his life who's trying to fix the kid isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- that's it. Then we have the title card, The Long Walk. And it's a very, very long walk when you just never stop. It's it's the long walk through countless versions of his own life because he never gets it right. Yep. Man, this <laughs> this movie is so much. <laughs> there's, it's incredible. There's so it's really good. It. It, it really feels like this is a post-Homestuck time travel story. <laughs> yeah it's it's so complex the the way the time travel works is really unique uh obviously we've got a lot of different reference points for similar ish uh types of time travel but no one's ever done it quite like this yeah this is the only time i've ever seen it done quite this way mm-hmm. and it's great like it's so effective yeah and like there's hints of so many cycles like like we'll have well We'll have just one shot of him sitting in a chair, but then he vapes in a different way than any other time. And that's the only time he vapes in that way. That's the only time we see that cycle. And there's so much, so many details. It's extremely detailed. It's something that is fun to kind of look at all of the little pieces of it and the, the small decisions that he's making and the way they balloon out into much bigger decisions over, you know, a a long timeline. Cause we're only seeing him at 10 and him at 60 yeah there's a lot of room for things to happen there and what's interesting is this little rural area never actually changes in any version no because he has no effect on it (laughs) it's it's something that just he has no effect like i said he can only affect himself he can't affect anyone else's future right which Oh, uh, we forgot to mention when she uh, shows the kid the future by drawing the line in the sand. Oh, yeah. Cool shot. Mm. And he he crosses the line and there's like some frightening thing speeding across the sky. Like a, like a sonic jet or something like that. Yeah. Although it, it looks like just the nose cone. It's just a little triangle. I thought it might be a missile at first. Yeah. Maybe it, it is. It seems to just be. No, it seems to just be high speed travel. Yeah, probably. It, it does because we don't hear any explosion or anything. We do see like the skyline of uh freaking Emerald City in the background of the road sometimes. Right. And very, I think consciously Emerald City esque in that it's at the very end of this long road, which he's never walking. He's he's never going to the city. That's not his life. No, it, it's just it's the road itself. Yeah. Which is also metaphorical that he lives exclusively on the road. He's never a part of society. He uh, is someone who is just on his road loop. He goes back and forth down the same stretch of road over and over again his entire life, never going, never uh, branching off. He he doesn't ever attempt to do anything different. He never tries to 
break these patterns he's never trying to go anywhere else there there's no timeline where he's like i'm gonna go to college yeah i'm gonna go try and better myself i'm gonna go get some education no he just sort of he's so navel gazing and he's so self-serving that he only ever does things that he think will that he he believes are going to better himself in a short term and he has no capability of long-term thinking yep <laughs> yeah that about sums it up <laughs> <laughs> yeah great movie uh fascinating artwork i would say uh, yeah i agree definitely worth watching definitely worth watching at least twice mm-hmm. uh it's it's totally a rewatchable type of thing because there's just so much that you can pull at and so many things to consider in the way it unravels each time mm-hmm. all right well do you have any last thoughts on the long walk before we head on to our third and final section yeah, I bet this guy wishes he found a purpose in life like joining up with the Yakuza family who just pointed him at whatever rival for him to kill. I mean, it seems like it probably still would have been a better <laughs> option. He still could have collected some pinkies. He could have. <laughs> He'd be right at home. <laughs> All right, well, on to part three. And we're back for part three, where we're talking about all the other movies we've watched in the past week on physical media. And we're going to decide what we cover next week. All right. We got some interesting ones here. It looks like. Yes. We've got 10 picks from, uh, for our second part. First up finished off the, uh, fun city editions, primetime panic volume one box set with death ride to Osaka, also known as girls of the white orchid. Oh, uh, Death Ride to Osaka is a cool name. Pretty They're cool, both cool names. Yeah. So this one, it's Yakuza related. Uh, interestingly enough, it is a TV movie from the early 80s with Jennifer Jason Lee, very young Jennifer Jason Lee. Okay. And I might be misremembering. I, we were talking about uh, Freedom, the previous movie in the box the week before. Uh, from uh, the the where the the girl runs away to join the carnival, right? Right. Yeah. And it's based on a true story, I think. And I might just be misremembering because I was reading about Jennifer Jason Lee in addition to that story because they're both in the box set. But I think Jennifer Jason Lee is the little sister of the real girl who Freedom was based on. I think. Because I remember okay. last week I was trying to remember who it was. I think it was Jennifer Jason Lee's older sister. I could yeah. be misremembering. Uh, anyway, she stars in this one. She's this waitress who is an aspiring musician. She wants to become a singer-songwriter. Okay. And she takes her tape to these guys, and there's this uh, Yakuza dude who... Uh, decides he wants to hire her in tokyo they're gonna go to tokyo and uh, she's gonna work in their nightclub the white orchid right i remember talking about this because i remember thinking how ridiculous it was to scout for waitresses overseas doesn't make a whole lot of sense Uh, for sex trafficking which of course is what it turns out to be and she's shocked pikachu uh can't believe it it's it's so shocking 
uh she she gets there and she's supposed to like she does perform she does her songs you know it's a it's a geisha kind of situation you know they do right. the performance and then she's supposed to entertain the men you know old japanese right. businessmen who are into uh young white girls that's sort of the the concept and her mm. boss is mako oh legendary uh mako yeah. in just everything you know he's her boss he's just a jerk <laughs> Doesn't have a lot to do in this other than just being an <laughs> asshole, but it's Mako. Hey, cool. <laughs> right on. Always happy to see him. Uh so yeah, she gets there. The it's it's weird. There's Shiro is an honorable Yakuza. And he except he's the guy who kind of got her into the contract in the first place. In like he came to America. He was the one who talked to her there, but he won't he's like stopping her from being forced into prostitution even though that was the point the whole time and it was his idea i don't know i don't really get how that works but yeah he's trying to protect her oh. from that even though he got her into it in the first place and it's because a ghost time traveled him <laughs> into the past and he said something know. to his kid and now he wants to protect her and of course, there's a, a a separate thread with her boyfriend who's in the military, who finds out about what's going on and is like trying to come save her. Okay, I mean it's it's a TV movie, so <laughs> there it's it's a little formulaic. Although this one's it's the European cut, so there is actually nudity and violence in it. Oh, so it's 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 it's, it's, okay. it's racy for a TV movie and pretty nicely shot, like a lot of cool neon and stuff. Oh, all right. Next up is Santo versus the Riders of Terror, which unfortunately is an extremely bad dub. Uh, I remember we we've you've discussed uh, in the past how just awful these dubs can be. It is unfortunate. This is from the VCI Santo El Enmascarado de Plata set. It, it's a drag. The restorations are terrible. You know they're. It, it I feel like it's an AI restoration too because it ew. looks chunky there are places that look really good and there are places that look really bad and it's very uneven as a transfer feels very smoothed over and obviously it's cropped it's not proper aspect ratio there are places that it just doesn't look right I think it's zoomed in which is that makes it a I much, hate that that's even worse yeah it's and it's it's annoying because it's not pan and scanned for the classic TV screen. It's you know now that everybody has one eight five one widescreen TVs most of the time, it's pan and scanned for that. I'm like, who are you making this for? Like, <laughs> the the people who buy boutique Blu-rays don't want shit like this, and the dub is fucking terrible. It's obviously brand new. You know, it's not a classic dub, which at least would have been made by the original people and have foley work and so forth like this one <laughs> you it, sent me some clips of the dub of this and, oh, oh, it's it's bad. it's atrocious because i think they don't use any of the original sound effects or score i think they're just using basic stock ones it feels really empty and i think maybe some of the original score and stuff is in there but it sort of feels like it's really low in the audio mix and then it's just them dubbing the voices over it really loud so it sucks that's a big problem uh so, sounds terrible yeah so buyer beware as far as that goes but 
the movie itself santo versus the riders of terror kind of fun uh like i i would love to get a proper restoration of this it's a weird uh, story <laughs> we're more or less weird than the dude who harvests organs for his painting photocopier uh equally i oh. guess because okay. this one the first thing that's really strange is it's in the old west america uh-huh. with where santo you know he's he's a real person who lives in the modern who lives Wait, in the hold modern on day. a second so <laughs> but santo is in the old west now yeah he's just santo wandering around the old west as santo in his mask riding a horse <laughs> riding a freaking horse uh i i don't think i've seen him ride a horse before that's also funny just to see santo in his mask riding a horse just like dressed in plaid <laughs> So the plot in this one is there is this town where there is a an asylum full of lepers, oh. like a sanitarium for lepers nearby. Okay. Oh, right. Because in the dub, they were arguing about the lepers. Lepers. Uh, the a couple of them break out. I. <laughs> guess i'm not really sure of the the specific like you know it's it's the kayfabe thing it's the weird sure. like everybody does their wrestling bits thing so the way things happen is a little odd and it has an obvious morality play to it where people keep repeating like oh well you know they're just people with an illness and if people would just not be you know terrified of them you know they're they're not that communicative you, you just need to take certain precautions and but Anyway, there there's a gang of outlaws, our riders of terror. Oh. And they decide they're going to exploit the fear that's struck by these people with leprosy. So they're going to capture all of them and keep them in a cave and just take one of them with them anytime they go to rob a place. And then everybody's <laughs> going to be terrified of this guy with the shittiest fucking leprosy makeup. It looks totally <laughs> absurd. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> give me all your money or the leper will breathe on you i mean basically and they're you know they're saying they're gonna split it up with those guys you know those guys have been you know unfairly treated by society so why shouldn't they get something out of it but obviously they plan to cut them out of it and kill them all by the end so you know right. santo happens to be going by on a horse and people are like oh yeah well why don't we ask santo i mean he helps with this sort of thing doesn't he yeah, being a federal agent who helps people in the 50s and 60s. Uh, yeah, and just everybody knows about him. It's like, oh yeah, Santo, yeah. I know that guy. That guy's, you know, famous. He's he's an important agent of the government. So Yeah, he's also a famous uh, luchador wrestler for what those get invented. Yeah, if wrestling. Uh that's a thing they do in this movie that didn't exist yet. <laughs> There's a part where someone just has a wrestling ring on a western street and he shows up and is like, "Want to do some wrestling, Santo?" <laughs> yes yeah you're gonna die in the ring he's definitely gonna die in the ring so yeah i mean i would love to see a proper restoration of the original version with the original language track and the proper aspect ratio i don't recommend this version but fascinating <laughs> sounds fun it, it it is a shame because i would like to maybe see this oh totally i i am it's such a drag this whole set because they're so the quality is so poor and like these movies are amazing i love the santo movies like they're bad but they're great they're just their own vibe and it's just a shame that this is such a slapdash collection that's really unfortunate i mean stuff like that can make or break an excellent movie 
my understanding is vinegar syndrome is going to be putting more of these out because like when that first one the one that we covered uh santo versus um dr death yeah, or something the, the the doctor of death or whatever um they mentioned it as the first in a series like they're going to be doing more of them i think they they definitely implied that they'd be delving deeper into the series and i really hope so i hope so too because rescue some of these yeah yeah for sure because like one of the other ones on this in this 10 is another thing that vci did a really shitty release of that vinegar syndrome just rescued and did a way better version of okay there is hope all right uh next we've got hellbent um this is it's a it's a punk movie sort of okay uh the it's sort of a it's it's told in a very strange sort of way you got this guy who's a punk rocker and he makes a deal with the devil to become famous but he kind of doesn't like he does and he doesn't he he is helped by the devil and the devil makes him famous it's just he doesn't really understand the terms of the contract he's getting into (laughs) well like that's kind of the devil's thing is to get you into contracts you don't understand true but the the way this plays out is a pretty unique version of it it's probably the funniest scene in the movie is the contract scene because he's trying to just make it as a punk rocker right he's got his band and he's very devoted to his craft and he goes to this guy who's the devil uh i think he's going by tannis okay oh (laughs) oh i just got it yeah uh it takes a while for him to get it but uh they they're preparing him with like anagrams and stuff and just it's going over his head anyway (laughs) he talks to him and he's he gives him the standard you you sign over your soul and then you uh i'll i'll make you rich and famous and he looks it over and he's like what the fuck is this i my soul i just want a fucking manager i'm looking for management (laughs) i need someone who can book a studio time i I want someone who can get us gigs and uh, like the devil sort of backs down is like (laughs) oh of course yeah this is all just a joke throw that away that's probably not legal anyway (laughs) soul stuff that's silly uh yeah i'll become your manager so you know he becomes his manager and he he slowly makes him make the shows more violent and there's just like all sorts of violence happening in the audience and he starts collecting automatic weapons and doing (laughs) so many drugs and he's completely spiraling out of control and going on totally insane rants every time he's in the studio and you know aiming automatic weapons at people (laughs) and then there's also this other thread of this lady who is looking for revenge i think her husband is killed and her daughter is kidnapped and the daughter ends up with the punk rock group for some reason because it's associated with these two guys who work for the devil who are just everyday thugs rather than demons and they don't understand (laughs) that they're working for the devil instead of a crime syndicate (laughs) that's kind of funny so they're trying to do crimes to bring in profit but they don't understand that it's just supposed to sow chaos and bring souls in and they just can't figure it out i don't know it's strange it's pretty fun (laughs) okay i mean it's not totally coherent (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but it sounds interesting at least. Uh, next up for your eyes only. The poster uh, for this looks real dumb. Yeah, I would say it's the worst more. Mm. Which puts it uh... low. <laughs> it's not one of the higher tier bonds. Like I, I would, you know, I'm not a huge Roger Moore fan. I, I certainly like him more than Pierce Brosnan, or at least I like his movies more than the Pierce Brosnan movies. I don't know if I like mm. more as an actor as Bond more than Brosnan. Brosnan just had bad scripts almost all the time. Yeah. But this one, ah, oh, it's it's like Vaporwave. I can never remember much about this movie. <laughs> it, it feels like the most generic Bond movie. Uh, the, the thing I mostly tend to remember is Topol. You know who Topol is? Um, re refresh my memory. I, I don't know if I've seen this one. He's best known for playing uh, Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, you know I'm not familiar. Okay. I mean, that's his big thing. He's reportedly someone who is extremely difficult to work with. He died quite recently, I believe. Mm, okay. Uh, he worked very little because he was hard to work with, so he mostly just kept doing stage revival versions of Fiddler on the Roof for years and years and years. Most All right. I mean, this one, he's really good in it. I really like him in it. He's the most memorable part of it. He's sort of a Tiger Tanaka type. You know, one oh, okay. of these guys that Bond hangs out with and has camaraderie with, who's not, who's sort of a representative of his country, except in this version, he's not, uh, like he's helping Bond, but he's a smuggler who just doesn't like the villain in this one. Okay. And there's also this other lady whose parents were killed by the villain who has a crossbow and is out for revenge. So she's along for the ride too. Sure. And the, the villain, uh, what? Hmm. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think. Like this movie. So, you know, in you only live twice. There's that. Uh, they reference the photos where these tourists took a couple photos and they saw the change in the water line. And then, they have the note that the the tourists were liquidated, right? Right, yeah. That's kind of the background for this lady who's going for vengeance. Her parents happened to see something that got them liquidated while they were on a boat that they took pictures of and they were reporting on. So it's it's kind of like that's the the kernel of the story that it comes from. And they're trying to track down this thing that's underwater i think it's a nuclear bomb no <laughs> it's a it's a code machine in a ship that was taken down by the villains so they're in a race to get it before the villains do generic <laughs> it's not much to it and it's got it sounds the... like me whenever i try to remember any bond movie honestly yeah. Like, I can usually remember, like, I've seen this movie upwards of a dozen times and still don't know what happens in it because it's just, it's the snooze. The opening credits are the worst of any Bond film, I think. They're really bad and the score stinks. Oh. Like, usually the score is something you can really rely on with a Bond. This one, it sounds like oh, a, yeah. a contemporary TV movie. Oh. <laughs> like, kind of disco-y, but not. And it's just sort of, like, cheesy... Da, 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 da. it stinks 
<laughs> Nothing about your description has told me has been able to tell me whether or not I've seen this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> there are times when I've rewatched and I'm like I know I've seen this, but have I seen this? Did I fall asleep? <laughs> <sighs> Next up is the Black Pit of Doctor M. This is the first Ooh. in Indicator's Mexico Macabre box set. Ooh. It's sort of a Lovecraftian concept, not like Lovecraft in like the cosmic horror sense, but in the sort of classical gothic horror of we have two scientists who are making a pact to find out what's beyond the veil of death. Ah, so then they'll try to induce medical death and flatline. No, this nope. one, whoever dies first is going to send word back somehow. They're going to learn about the afterlife. Or, okay. And it's this complicated procedure where one of them is going to get condemned for murder after the other one dies, and then he'll exonerate him at the last minute after his death to prove that there's an afterlife or something <laughs> all right so if i die you gotta go to jail for murder and i promise i'll come back and get you out of jail yeah i mean the the way the plan sorts out it kind of works out that way i don't know how it was originally supposed to work because there there was an amount of predestination involved where they knew they were going to do this one thing and he's going to okay. close the door after this one killing and i it's a little bit of a mystery how it unfolds. It, it hmm. I, I don't know how tightly scripted it was. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's got a lovely gothic atmosphere. You're mainly there for just you know, the black and white photography and all the shadows and just people being in this sort of weird gothic space. It doesn't need to make a whole lot of sense. You're just seeing this thing play out between these two scientists and this guy ending up in jail and there's a, a sanitarium that they work at and there's this lady who's crazy and there's this guy with a melted face and maybe the guy with the melted face is more than he seems or i don't know <laughs> it's 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 a whole lot of stuff but it's not a whole lot of happenstance it's more just a mood okay <laughs> Uh, next up is, if footmen tire you, what will horses do? <laughs> <laughs> this is the next one in the, oh. the Ormond box set. I, I've seen, you showed me clips of this one. I sent you a ton of clips from this because yep. this one had me rolling. I was laughing the whole time. <laughs> it's like, it's horrible. It's horrendous it's one of the worst things i've ever seen but it's also incredibly compelling and very very funny and it's not supposed to be funny <laughs> make sure you die for jesus instead of convert to communism children oh man so it is a scare film there's this guy estes perkle who was a far-right ideologue preacher of the era. Oh, that's a real name. A real name. Uh, and he, It's him doing this sermon about how communism is going to take over America in 24 months. It's very Alex Jonesy, really Infowars-esque, where it's like, it's happening now. In 24 months, this will be our reality. 
<laughs> and the frogs will be gay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's this one, it's all communism. So the footmen are people shifting culture to the left. And okay. uh, he doesn't really suggest how this happens other than that, you know, in movies and stuff. And it just, it just it's happening. Though, culture me, permissive. It's too permissive. And then it's just all of his fire and brimstone preaching about the horrors that will happen. And it's very fixated on violence to children. Yep. Which it's troubling in a way because it sort of seems like a fantasy of his more than it seems like this is what communists are definitely going to do because it's all his imagination, right? Like none of this oh, is sure. even remotely true. So it's just well, him blue skying uh, the things that I kind of you, you sort of get the impression that it's what he wants to see happen to enemies of Christ. You know, it's the same projection thing that we deal with today. This is what I'm thinking, so this is definitely what my enemy must also be thinking. Exactly, exactly. So, just so much stuff. Many sequences of children being massacred in the streets, and just <laughs> just corpses covered in poster paint lying on the ground. He <laughs> he. Most of the cast are just volunteers from local Baptist churches, so nobody oh can really act. You're just throwing paint on people. You have people running around outside of a Baptist church. And, <laughs> you know, people who are quote-unquote communists who are dressed up in Nazi uniforms, except instead of the swastika, <laughs> it's a hammer and sickle. Very poorly drawn. That's not... That's not... <laughs> It doesn't take effort. Opposite sides. <laughs> anyway, they're also, I guess they're Cuban because they make Americans worship Castro as God, which also is not how communism works, but whatever. Uh, very not how communism works. Uh, there, There's all these torture scenes, things that they're supposedly doing. There's that amazing bit where I, I sent you the thing where the kid is refusing to renounce jesus like i i think the the right. con it's 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 much like one of those witch hunt things where they want him to stamp on a portrait of jesus yeah they, they do with the bible in witch hammer right yeah something like that yeah. yeah so the he wants the kid to just step on the picture of jesus and then we won't kill you and the kid refuses so they behead him and like there's <laughs> the kids making this whole like impassioned speech about how uh i go to death uh here jesus one day you died for me now i'm willing to die for you and then they fucking chop his head off <laughs> uh, incredible <laughs> just fucking incredible like horrible but so funny and so wrong-headed and just yeah uh, an amazing bad scare film and it's crazy how much of it kind of feels like the same stuff that we're seeing today uh, the same stuff that same kind of scaremongering like so much of this could fit in with modern info wars <laughs> except that some of the examples of the liberties we have don't exist anymore in america because they've been eroded by the conservative party <laughs> just incredible uh next up terror at 10 killer this is the one that uh, Vinegar Syndrome Rescued from VCI that I was mentioning. Oh. Uh, it's a beautiful 4K restoration of 
something that I don't know if it really deserves it that much. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice to see it beautiful though, uh, as beautiful okay. as it could be. This is a, a very basic slasher film, uh, low budget regional slasher. Uh, just I don't think it needed a 4K. I mean, I don't even have a 4K player. I don't give a shit. So <laughs> maybe my opinion doesn't count there, but it's not a movie that is exceptionally uh, high quality to a degree that you'd want to see its visuals in like super high def. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. It's it, it's it a very low stop. budget slasher. <laughs> doesn't, it, it's not as visually interesting as uh, Avatar. I mean, it's not, even in the same sort of visual league as like a Friday the 13th, you know, it's, oh. it's a much lower budget, much more lo-fi independent picture. Like you're looking more at something like blood Lake, except not shot on video. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it, it's the story of these two girls who go to this cabin and stay at the little, the lake uh, because one girl wants to get away from her extremely clingy, uh, rich boyfriend who's just kind of forcing her into marriage and she kind of doesn't know she wants to get with him at all anymore so she and her friend go off to this lake sure but unfortunately there's a slasher at the lake who's slashing people oh he, no he he gets in his boat and he rows around and he finds someone he slashes them and he rows away <laughs> and we know who he is right away so like there's really no mystery involved we see him in the first scene kill someone and then we see him later in his like everyday persona and they meet him and we know he's the killer and we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and it takes a long time because there's very low body count in this again low oh. budget oh no I mean, visually nice for the low budget. You got kind of a giallo style. You got some black glove stuff. You got some nice lighting, but uh, it's it's pretty generic. You know, it's it's a slasher. <laughs> <laughs> I like slasher movies quite a bit, so I enjoyed myself. But there's not a lot to it. Uh, it's it's one of the lower end genre entries. Okay, good to know. Next up, Crocodile. Uh, this is an Indonesian crocodile movie. Oh, I think I may have sent you a clip or two from this. I'm not sure. It's a giant crocodile, like really giant. It's kind of a kaiju movie. Oh, cool. <laughs> like uh, it, it's choppy because my understanding is it's sort of a, a lot of the scenes are assembled from a couple other giant crocodile movies. That the same director oh. made. <laughs> I see. Uh, but yeah, it's got a real kaiju feel to it because the the crocodile at times is like the size of a city block. Not always, <laughs> but sometimes. Like there, there's a part where it's got a water buffalo just in its jaws and it's walking around with it. <laughs> like a whole adult water buffalo. Nice. Uh, and there, there's a part where it's swimming after like three children and it just like swallows them entirely whole uh <laughs> you get a lot of sequences of just entire people in its mouth screaming and uh there, there's oh, oh yeah i know i know i sent you one clip where they used a dude who clearly had already had both of his legs amputated below the knee so they have him swimming and they've like attached viscera to the bottom of the stumps <laughs> and then they show the the crocodile in the background with these fake legs in its mouth 
It's good stuff. <laughs> also, for some reason, the crocodile's eyes glow red all the time. So sometimes you just see red eyes moving through the water. <laughs> behind of characters. course, it's a monster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in terms of the kaiju stuff, because it's so giant, they have to use a lot of miniatures. And there's this one part where it just like busts up an Indonesian market street, which is, it has a river in the middle. Okay. So there's like a bunch of... Uh, you know, it's like houses on stilts kind of thing, uh, but like a oh, little shop neat. and it, you know, destroys the whole fucking thing and eats everybody. And there's just like river running red with blood. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds fun. It's pretty fun. It's choppy. Like I said, it's, this is an American dub version and it's got a bunch of stuff edited in from a couple of his other films and the way this one is chopped up, like that sequence I'm talking about where it destroys that one street, that takes place over like, I think, three different sequences that are supposed to be different times in the movie. But they're oh. all from the original one single sequence, which, as a, in my understanding, the original film is just one really big set piece. Okay. So it's choppy, but, you know, pretty fun. Uh, the kaiju stuff is really amusing, the the use of miniatures. And it's kind of funny just how over-the-top gory it can be at times. Like I said, it eats children whole. There's the, <laughs> you know, naked ladies being uh, chewed on in its mouth, and they're screaming, and they're just, like, got really fake wounds, and they're completely <laughs> nude. So it's got an energy that you don't normally get in a kaiju movie that's sort of more from the natural horror element of it. Okay, cool. Next is Oceans 12, the sequel to the Soderbergh Oceans 11. And how's this one? I really like this one. My, I, I didn't like it as much as I remembered. I had kind of ha built it up in my mind as better than the first one. I think the first one's still better, but... Even when I saw it in theater, the original time, I really liked Ocean's 12, which is an unusual reaction. Because this is one of the oh, most hated movies. This was a oh. gigantically hated movie. <laughs> like, really? I didn't toxic. know that. Let me see. Uh, uh, it has a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I, I'm looking at the preview of the first review that appears at the top and it says a truly pathetic film <laughs> huh. oh, wow uh, it's one I like but yeah it's very audience antagonistic and it's completely incoherent if you're not really familiar <laughs> with the first film because it's an experimental euro crime like 60s euro crime tribute movie it's told out of order it doesn't let the audience in on what's happening about anything <laughs> until the very end of the movie when it says oh actually all of this stuff happened and everything you saw wasn't happening the way you thought it was it was all fake and it's also a movie about making a sequel where they didn't intend to make a sequel where everything's tied up and everything's all neat because uh you know they they rob five casinos and everybody retired. They have lots of money. Yeah. Why, why would you go and do another one? Why would you get the gang back together for one last, last job? Well, because Andy Garcia, the guy they stole it all from in the first one, comes back and he knows where everybody lives. And he's like, I want all my uh -huh. money back with interest. So they have to do a big score to an even bigger score 
because that's what you do in a sequel you have to escalate it (laughs) so sure they have to get everyone back in sign everyone up and they go talk to carl reiner and he's really old he's like i don't want to come back for a sequel guys you just go do it yourselves (laughs) and so he doesn't come along and (laughs) it's uh one guy who uh I, I can't remember the name of the actor. Uh, the, he's the least known actor who he, he's just an acrobat guy. So his character has gotten the, the fame has gone to his head and he's just spent all the money on booze and drugs. And he's just like totally gone down this weird path. And it's, it's a sequel. Like it's a sequel about a sequel. And they, <laughs> uh, there's all these sequences where they all meet up in a warehouse and they do like script planning and then they're like uh, how would we do this and like well what would be the reason and would it work if we do this <laughs> thing and we never see them doing the things we just see them talking about doing the things which makes it kind of more spiritually a remake of the original oceans 11 in that sense man if i had seen the first one i would love to do this this sounds this sounds like my jam yeah i love it but you have to have seen the first one and i think it would be impossible to do both of them together because okay there's a lot in both of them they're very complicated movies but i'll come back to them like we'll we should definitely do oceans 11 and oceans 12 sometime but yeah it would be really tough without having seen the first one all right okay i will take your word on that it's borderline incoherent if you're already familiar with the first one because you just need to find out at the end what happens and then you go through and like oh, okay i kind of get it even though there's a bunch of sequences where we're getting zero information because the joke is on one character not knowing what's happening but that character represents the audience not knowing what's happening I, usually matt man, <laughs> man i want to do this now sometime you've sold me on this oh yeah we should totally do it sometime because it is fascinating and i get why people were pissed off about this movie but i always really enjoyed it uh because it's it's like a jazzy riff on the first one it gets the the like the first one it's like yeah it was a perfect absolutely precisely constructed uh hollywood ephemera piece like it is a blockbuster film this is one where it's like this one's for me not not doing it for (laughs) you guys this isn't for the audience this is for me steven soderbergh (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right and last up is avalon next from the michael j murphy box oh it's another larp okay it's very dnd this one it's really larpy uh it's it like like the Tristan and Isolde one. It is Arthurian themed. It's like King Arthur, okay. Arthurian legend. You've got Merlin with just the shittiest yeah. makeup. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he's he first appears to them as a very old man, and then because they uh, the old man makeup that they have is like a plaster giant face that they have on that just it. He looks stupid. <laughs> he looks ridiculous. They just have him de-age himself to be a young warrior that helps them out sometimes. Okay. Except he kind of just leaves them. He he helps them swim to an island and then he vanishes for most of the movie until he shows up again later to help them. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's very D&D. You got a few characters that all feel like distinct types. There's this guy who's a warrior barbarian you got a thief 
who has really low dexterity but high charisma so he's not good at stealing stuff but he's good at getting away with it afterwards like when he gets caught he's he's pretty good at talking his way out of things even though he's never good at doing the actual thieving okay and uh, yeah you know these these people they team up and they go to this island they're gonna take on morgana le fay and her evil magic island full of ladies i don't really know why (laughs) i don't know what purpose it serves or what she's doing that is causing a problem for anyone because she's on this island to herself that they have to swim to that they don't that nobody knows where it is except merlin so it's like they could have just left her alone <laughs> quite honestly it doesn't seem like she was doing anything uh you can't leave morgana alone she's bad i guess i mean that's that's and the she idea does witch things she's a witch witches are bad uh i mean it's it's very ambient <laughs> okay it's uh people running around in a forest doing larp stuff and uh, there's some uh synth music playing i i had fun but i couldn't tell you much about it beyond that going honestly <laughs> so those are our 10 picks what do you figure for it next week well i don't know what it is but i've been in a really laughy mood this afternoon what's What's going to make me, I don't know, I don't know if the question is what's the funniest or what's going to make me laugh the most. Well, I would tell you that definitely the one that made me laugh the most was if footmen tire you, what will horses do? Because I was cackling the whole time. There are so many points where (laughs) Estes Perkle would say something completely insane and then it would cut to someone in the audience and I'd just go, ha! (laughs) There's like, one of my favorite bits he's talking about and like oh and under communism women will be brutalized and uh, i heard a story about the they'll tie a woman naked between two jeeps and pull her into pieces and it cuts to a like eight-year-old girl in the front pew and she's just grinning from ear to ear it's the best thing she's ever heard so i mean oh my god like as with the previous time we did the ormans i don't know that that one alone could fill up we could catch up we could do the other three in between well you know i'm actually kind of thinking that because i was going to mention this before the show started but i have monday off from work next week hey so i have an extra day that i can do that i can do another movie or a few other movies if well, this w- it would be a good one because there's not a lot to say about Forty Acre Feud, uh, Girl from Tobacco Row, exotic ones. There's some stuff to talk about. Okay, yeah. Um, so why don't yeah why don't we get caught up on the Ormans right on, <laughs> <laughs> and then we can get see their uh, nosedive into Hellfire and Brimstone. Yeah, and this is fascinating because exotic ones. It's also after the plane crash. It's the first of the Born Again films, except it doesn't do any of that stuff. (laughs) And then this one, it goes hardcore. All right. Well, that that should be a fun time. I think so. So on the main stacks, we only have a few additions. Uh, First up is Delirium. It's another one called Delirium. This is probably like the fourth or fifth one now. Uh, <laughs> there's been a couple. there's been a few i don't think we've ever covered one called delirium but i've certainly watched several i don't believe we have so this one is a film by renato polselli i've talked a bit about him recently he did the vampire and the ballerina and monster of the opera okay so i mentioned those ones are extremely horny gothic films 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and but both of those are before censorship eased. This one's after. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> this one's from the 70s oh. and uh my understanding is it's extremely horny there's a lot of nudity it's really fucking deranged it's a giallo but it's mm-hmm. this thing where uh this local doctor has been killing people like he, he's been doing a series of sex killings and he's also got like ladies ch- chained up in his basement right okay and his wife is starting to suspect something's not right with him. (laughs) (laughs) Something's just not right in their marriage. Uh, And yeah, uh, then someone spots him or uh, there's a witness who sees him with one of the victims and things uh, rapidly unravel. Oh, all right. Uh, Next is the witch's mirror, which is the second one in the uh, Mexican macabre set. Cool. Uh, this one is about, I think it's another one. Uh, uh, so a husband murders his wife. Years later, her ghost comes out of a witch's mirror uh, looking for oh. revenge. <laughs> All right. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next in the Ormond set, The Burning Hell. Oh, I bet this is going to be about... Oh, it's it's another Estes Perkle. It's him doing a sermon about what hell will be like, kind of like what America will be like under communism. So, yeah. I I love Bart Simpson. Wouldn't you just get used to it after a while? No! (laughs) (laughs) And last, from the Michael J. Murphy box, we've got Moonchild, which is... Uh, this lady gets a job working as like a healthcare assistant for this guy who's you know, this sickly author. And uh, uh, she doesn't realize that there's just shit going down in this small town that's uh, really messed up. Okay, cool. It's weird gothic shit again, probably. Hmm. So those are the only additions. Right. What do you figure for our main feature next week? Uh, well... <laughs> Uh, there is, of course, one part of me that just wants to do the next uh, Mako Kaji film, which is Sex Hunter, the Stray Cat Rock. <laughs> and if we were to do that, maybe we could do like a little covering of the other one. Yeah, we could de- we could uh, dip could. into it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm also kind of thinking I've kind of kind of had a one track mind lately. So how far away? from battles without honor and humanity can we get with what's on the stack uh man i don't know i mean uh something in terms of genre in terms of tone or even in terms of a country where it was filmed yeah i mean like i figure we probably wouldn't do another yakuza one right away that's what i'm (laughs) yeah um i mean there's there's a lot of different stuff here i mean the I I guess the big earmarks of Battles Without Honor and Humanity is it's historical, it's uh, Japanese. We've done quite a, like, like you said, we've done like four or five. We've done a lot of Japanese. We've done a lot of Mikokaji specifically recently. Well, Well, yeah, I guess we've done so many in a row. And it's also extremely complicated very dense mm-hmm. so i guess something that's a bit more vibesy would be the the way okay. to go there i don't know yeah what are some i mean there's a lot all of right, weird yeah. stuff here we, we got all sorts of flavors all right what are some what are some vibesy ones something i could just get really 
really high and just sit myself in front of and kind of lose myself into it. What's something like the Long Walk or Two Orphan Vampires? I'm thinking. Okay, looking for something in that sort of vibe. Well, let's see. In that vibe, yeah, yeah. If if possible. Uh, let's see. Well, there's Les Vampires, which is a silent, but that kind of it's it's a weird crime yeah, syndicate we kinda thing. T- we talked about that one a little while ago. Yeah, I, I'm actually thinking. I, I kind of have an idea, but I want to talk about it later on how how and when we're going to do that. Okay. Uh, there's the Milky Way, which is another uh, one by uh, uh, Buniel, who did Exterminating Angel. This is another religious oh. thing. It's uh, about pilgrims going to some pilgrimage site, and it's it's another heavily satirical thing about just uh, people dealing with weird christian dogma and heresy stuff and face the christian dogmas and heresies from different ages that's actually sounds really interesting uh and i did yeah i didn't realize that was the same director as exterminating angel oh yeah yeah which was one of my favorites last year so good yeah no i'm a big bunyal fan i've got a few of his there uh there's the lap or the last of england it's a Derek jarman film this one is it's like tilda swinton uh, early Tilda Swinton before she was like a name actress this is where she was more in the experimental scene. And okay. it's sort of her as this sort of angelic figure wandering through the wasteland of a post-apocalyptic England. It's very abstract. I have seen that one before. But a dark now. meditation of London under Thatcher. Yeah. Because <laughs> Jarman was a queer artist who was dying of AIDS. So, oh, very dystopian view of Thatcher, quite reasonably. That's yeah. actually, oh, I remember something from Free Your Eyes Only. There's a bit where someone impersonating Thatcher shows up to thank him at the end. Oh, thumbs down. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there's Speaking of Murder. Uh, I think it appears here. Uh, the the title is the French title, Le Rouge et Mise. That's a uh, a noir, a French oh. noir. So kind of in the we've had fun with those. Yeah, so that that would kind of be in the vein of the K d'Orfèvre kind of flavor. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm in the mood for another one of those. All right. So you're thinking. Speaking of murder, I do have an entire yeah. noir stack now that we haven't delved into it all yet. Oh, nice, nice. So this one is the first in a set of three of French Noirs released recently by Kino. And it's this guy who owns a garage. He's played by Jean Gabin, who's the real legend of French Noir. Real face on the guy. He's the one on the poster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he runs this garage where a bunch of robbers uh, operate out of. But they, you know, they they keep it clean during the day. But then uh, one of the gang members uh, starts to believe that the owner's brother is informing on them to the police. So oh. drama within. Ooh, sounds sounds like it could sounds like it could be. Oh my god! It sounds like it could be fun. Yeah, I think that'll probably be a pretty good time. So you, you want to go with that? Speaking of murder, and yeah, let's go with that. All right. So mostly shorter movies, but we're doing a bunch of them. We'll do mm-hmm. Speaking of Murder from 1957, as well as the next four in the Ormond box set: Forty Acre Feud, Girl from Tobacco Row, 
the exotic ones, and a footman tire you what will horses do? I love that title. It's so stupid. It's I don't know what it means. It's such a mouthful. It's the idea is he's calling, you know, the footmen are the culture war people, the people moving the country toward the left. And so if they're able to defeat you, you know, what about the their warriors on horseback when like the actual shock troops show up on our shores? Oh, <laughs> if you're losing the culture war, how are you gonna win the real war? Yeah, basically. Uh that's what a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so yeah, next week, speaking of murder and hormones, part two. Uh, do you have any last thoughts before we close for this evening? The communists will turn the frogs gay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been listening to this podcast, Knowledge Fight, quite a bit recently, where they analyze episodes <laughs> of uh, different episodes of InfoWars, both current day ones and ones from like back in the early aughts when he was sort of developing and they have loads of quotes from alex jones they're all kind of pinballing around in my head when i watch stuff and it's like i'm <laughs> recognizing very alex jonesy ways of speech and yeah perkle is like a proto alex jones i bet this movie was a major influence on him <laughs> really yeah the way estes argues is very much the way uh, uh alex argues and it's the same thing that like oh it's happening now and it's going to take place in the next two years it's not just this is a thing that could happen it is currently happening and it will happen soon even though they Here's keep the doing date. it yeah they, they just keep on going it's like well it didn't end up happening <laughs> They they never have to answer for that somehow. The, their audience never holds them to these very specific well, predictions. We fought the good fight, but we have to keep fighting the good fight. Yes, so I guess I need money. <laughs> yep, buy my vitamins. All right. Uh, wait, 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 wait. We we forgot to talk about Jandek. Jandek corner. Let's talk about the rep. We, I forgot to watch it from last week's episode like we were supposed to. Which so. is why I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Remember uh, last week? I remembered at the beginning today, and then I completely forgot who I was talking about. Two entire movies. My intro joke was going to be about it, but it wasn't. Uh, it was going to be worse than usual, so I didn't do it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it was going to be, I'm in the photo, but like, no. No, it's not anything. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Yeah. in the photo. Yeah. yeah. So thoughts. I mean, I, I've, I, I've listened to a lot of Jandek. I'm a very big Jandek fan. I've seen Jandek in person. I've been to a show. So uh, uh, I'm very familiar with the work. It's, it's uh, <laughs> watching this one. I mean, it's like the 40th Jandek album I've heard. As a first oh, wow. one, I don't know. Whoa. Uh well <laughs> I I, pl I plugged it in and uh I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm like man when this tool song starts going it's gonna be off the chain and it's been 30 minutes and I'm like oh wow I felt like I've been listening for five. It it's got a real hypnotic quality. I, I find that about a lot of his work. It's got this sort of it it's a very specific vibe. There's really nothing else that sounds like Jandek uh and it's it's not even consistent there's all sorts of different styles of jandek there are jandek albums that are just drums those are a little <laughs> bit off the beaten path and sometimes he does solo piano 
not a huge fan of those ones. Uh, indeterminacy. Yeah, this uh, he gets a harmonica at one point in this mm. one. Yeah, he he he's a uh, like acoustic guitar, electric guitar, harmonica. Those are the more regular ones. Sometimes you know you get some double bass in there. But there's just a, a, a way to the tuning and the tonality of the way he plays that's very distinctive. Like when I hear a Jandek song, the first few notes, I know it's a Jandek song. I do not know nearly enough about music to be able to do that. Yeah, but it's like if I, I could, there, there's artists that I listen to are also outside artists. There are others who are very discordant. Like I guess the closest analog, sometimes I might confuse it with... Uh, uh, Glenn Branca, who, who's more of just a noise artist who who does sort of layered levels of guitar. And at the start of his, sometimes the cacophony of just like one weird guitar part that doesn't fit with anything else until you layer like 50 more guitars on top of it. Sometimes <laughs> that kind of sounds like it might be a Jandek track, but otherwise it's like, oh, this is Jandek. And I don't even need to hear his extremely distinctive voice to hear it <laughs> yeah see that took me out of that it, his voice took me out of thinking this was going to be a tool song because maynard from tool as we know also has a very distinctive voice it does Dis not sound like jandek distinctive ask i mean maynard's voice it's solid in in its arabic like in its specific wheelhouse but it is sort of the alternative rock voice you know it, it's within the same realm as the other alt-metal guys of the era, like Paige Hamilton from Helmet or whatever. There's a whole bunch of dudes who sort of sound like that. Jandek oh, just is unique. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's strange there because there's no, it's not singing exactly. No. <laughs> there, there's a, an element of, like there's melody, but it's more, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> the, the only uh i guess lyrics to this yeah. song <laughs> just the one just the one line just Actually, the one th this this is like a six disc set we're, we're talking i i don't think we mentioned this is the uh northern ireland july box set that he recently released it's one of the i don't know 15 or so albums that he's released so far this year oh my god <laughs> <laughs> and uh it, it's like six discs so there's the first disc is this is the the first set like the the 70 minute show that's on the dvd except the dvd is incomplete i think they ran out of tape or it battery feels like they must have because <laughs> it's going and then it doesn't wind down or anything it just no. stops yeah it's it's very abrupt it just cuts off there is the rest of the song like there's another like 12 minutes of it on the first disc that completes it so yeah the one line in this song is get in the photo <laughs> get, get in, in the, the photo, photo. <laughs> very very precisely pronounced every time you can always pick it out yeah oh yeah it is. <laughs> like the the music gives way and makes room for his uh lyric yeah i but each of these songs, like there's, you know, it's this big set and each yeah. of them, they're each night of this July residency or the the uh, various shows he did there. He does like four more shows and they're they're all like, you know, 70, 80 minutes long. They're all one song and each of them has one line. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and that's not normal. Like that's not something he always does. I've heard ones that have like lots of lyrics or there are ones where he sings. There's ones where he does country music. There's ones where he does noise rock. There's ones where he does funk jams. Okay. <laughs> it's it's kind of unreal. The the Rudyards show, his incredible Texas funk jam is just like an all-timer. Uh you'll have to check out I, I have that one on CD and DVD as well. We'll have to check that out sometime. It's amazing. Him doing yeah. funk. <laughs> I, I actually found out I don't have any device to play that plays music CDs. Oh no. Well it, it would play in the uh PlayStation PS. probably, wouldn't it? That's what I thought, but it wouldn't play whatever the whatever format the first disc is. PlayStation it just CDs. Play it. They're just basic yep. compact discs. Wouldn't oh, do that's, it. That's strange. Yeah, well, that's but then bad. I realized I have a PS2 that will. So. Oh yeah, the PS2 would for sure. I've yeah. played lots of discs on my old PS2. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the Rudyard's show is the one that really has the most iconic of his live shows. But and that one's all instrumental. That one's just a straight up funk jam the whole time. Uh, but like when I saw him in Victoria, uh, back in 2009, I think it was, there's like, there were a lot of lyrics. It was a very densely lyrical show. Okay. Like he had a whole lyric booklet, uh, on, on like a, a stand in front of him. Like it was a very different style of show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, I guess we can talk about like the show itself. Too. right and well and also the other musicians uh i'm a really big fan of uh the bassist here uh this this lady heather lee does bass and she's sort of the most prominent figure in the video uh-huh. uh and yeah she rocks like really <laughs> good uh interplay with jandek yeah uh watching the video it took me a long time before i could even identify which one was jandek like, he's barely in it. He's very hard to spot. He's way in the background. And then there's he's like... He's like off to the side most of the time. He's not even on the frame. Yeah, he's just at the very edge. And there's like light sources around him. And like it's a low quality camcorder footage. Yeah. So it's so blown out. You just see the lights and there's, you know, you can sort of see a shadow of a person there. And once in a while, he'll step up to the mic and say, get in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> but he himself isn't in the photo. Right, yeah, it's, it's, oh, that might hard. be the point. Yeah, I think that's sort of the idea. Because also, you notice when he gets up to the, when he steps up to the mic, there's all this flashing going on. Like, there's a whole bunch of flash photography. I wonder if it's an audience interaction thing, where oh. when he steps up, that's when you're supposed to, like, get a bunch of flashes going. Because it doesn't look like a light show. And it only no. happens when he's at the mic. And every time he's at the mic, he talks about getting in the photo. Well, <laughs> talks about. <laughs> he says it. <laughs> he says, get in the photo. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that's interesting. That's that that makes sense. One of the other things I really like about it is how he's right like there there's his light sources and him in the corner, and then uh a little bit more in the middle of the screen, there's this door. I guess it's the back door to the venue, and you see the sunset <laughs> over the course of the performance. Oh, I never even noticed that. Yeah, it just gets darker outside the door as the performance wears on. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest. I was only kind of like partially watching the visual part. I was more just tripping balls with the music, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a whole vibe. Yeah, I, I glanced at it 
uh, when I heard something, but once I realized this is the angle it's going to be, this is the lighting it's going to use, I just kind of closed my eyes. I'm like, okay, but I'll listen to the music though. I find it interesting visually, but yeah, it's obviously not dynamic. One no. of the things that's weird is you're seeing people constantly cross in front of the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I can't figure the setup of the venue because it's. No. <laughs> it feels the, like, like they're in the middle kind of. Well, I can't figure where or... the camera is. They seem to be up against a wall, but I don't know why people would be. Because the, the camera also seems to be awfully close to the, uh, the bassist, Heather Lee. So. I, I don't know how they're in between all the time. They keep having to like squeeze past Jandek too. And it's weird. Yeah, it feels this must be like a tiny venue because the, the impression yeah. that I got was that we're not seeing a whole lot of like what we see in the frame is about 90% of the venue is the impression I get. Yeah, Jandek plays some tiny venues. Uh when I saw him, it was in a dance studio loft uh next door to the gay bar uh, oh. <laughs> on, on Yates no Johnson just off of Johnson right right I probably know the one yeah so like I think it is it, it used to be paparazzi I think it was paparazzi at the time and uh yeah it's the next door uh the loft above it and just this little dance studio very tiny space and when we got in, like everybody set up their own folding chairs and you have instructions <laughs> as an audience, like there are specific times when you can clap and only then. Oh, it's interesting. Interesting. Well, because like he's, he, he, I mean, he's only done shows for like five years, but he's been recording music for 50. Oh my God. <laughs> no, 40 at least. Because 79 or 78 is the first album. Holy shit, okay. Uh, yeah, 1978, he released Ready for the House. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's got 200 albums now. <laughs> <laughs> and and he never performed a show. He never uh, did an interview. He was never uh, seen in any live capacity. He was sort of a mystery. People weren't sure if he was this real guy people didn't know what he looked like people didn't know if the person sing like no one knew what his name was <laughs> <laughs> you know people call it like i call him the rep because you know people always called him the representative from corwood corwood is his label oh okay corwood industries <laughs> and for his very first show in 2004 you know after what 35 years and 25 <laughs> years of recording albums uh he he was not performing as Jandek. He was representative from Corwood Industries. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm just a really huge fan. Uh, it's a unique thing. There, there's it's it's hard to explain the allure of Jandek to someone. Yeah, I I agree. After watching it, I don't think I don't think I can explain it outside of when's the tool song starting and get in the photo i just i don't have the language to explain music well and it's also it, you i feel like you can't really describe it with basic music theory because well, he yeah. doesn't use music theory <laughs> he's totally self-taught it's well it, i mean it's free improvis improvisation but yeah. mm, it's you know it's not the standard free improvisation that you get 
from like trained jazz musicians who normally do this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I, th- that would be the other players, uh, Heatherly and David Keenan on drums. Those people are, you know, they they have lots of bands. They've been doing all sorts of stuff uh, in those capacities. Like they're trained musicians, whereas Jandek is totally self-taught. Yeah, you know that's interesting. We, that that'll explain why it doesn't sound like anything I know. <laughs> hmm. Because he he just created it himself. It was all just and like so self created that he had like he's never worked with other people really. I mean, he <laughs> has some of his old albums. There are other musicians, but they're usually anonymous too. We're <laughs> <laughs> just imagining like. Jandek featuring Ice Cube. He has played with some really famous people now that he's been doing live shows. Oh, uh, but you know, not not usually uh, of the the Ice, Cube, Ice Cube sort of stripe. He's got like Thurston Moore from uh, Sonic Youth. He did oh. a show with um, John Danyal, Mountain Goats. Okay, he, he's done some with. Like I, I've got a bunch of them where it's like, oh shit, this one's got John Danyal. No shit, <laughs> but. It's it's still always very much the Jandek show because there, there's just nothing else like it. You you might get a flavor of those other people, but it's it's going to be his whim. Yeah, that, that's definitely something else I could feel like this is one person's idea. This isn't made by a committee. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it's art, not commerce. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh my god, I can't imagine trying to market this to sell to people. Yeah, I mean, he's it's it's direct mail order. Uh, I've <laughs> bought directly from him tons of times because I have just a gigantic stack of his discs now. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Like he he's been running mail order exclusively for all of this time. That that's how you get his discs. You uh, get the mail order direct from him personally. <laughs> so I can't just go down to HMV. Does HMV even exist anymore? No, it went out of business. I used well, now to I really there, can't remember? go down there. <laughs> no, uh, like some independent record stores carry his stuff, but mm. yeah, it's a you know because you can as a store contact him and get it, but no chain store is going to do that. Oh, we had to go. No, I do remember a brief era in the early aughts where Amazon stocked all of his stuff very briefly because there was a, a a lot of his stuff had only come out in pretty limited quantities and then uh when he started finally doing shows there was renewed interest so there was a reissue of all of it and everything kind of came back into print so you could get his stuff for like 10 bucks on amazon that was kind of killer but that doesn't happen anymore you can't really get it there anymore (laughs) oh amazon's not going to carry jandek anymore no i don't think so i mean they don't carry much anymore especially cds oh yeah passe yes i guess that's not much (laughs) some bands just don't even make cds anymore it's a bummer it's a drag there there are like bands that i like that like they put out a new album like i'm putting it on a cd i want to buy it sucks (laughs) i don't want fucking vinyl i don't have space for vinyl (laughs) oh yeah no shit. I need that space for my my movies and you know all the CDs I already have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess probably not a lot more to say about it. Uh, uh, just I, I love it though. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. Uh, I don't know that I'd like go out and mail order a bunch more of his CDs, but I liked what I heard. I mean, it's a it's this is a very specific vibe. Uh, the the scope of his stuff is really wild 
Uh, there's one song I'd highly recommend called Lifting Long Necks. Sorry. Um, this. Lifting uh, Long Necks. Lifting Long Necks. Yeah, like long neck. I, oh. I was talking about drinking beer. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm thinking like the the tall neck, which is a robot in for in Horizon Zero Dawn, and you have to climb up on top of it to get your access to the map. And I'm like, I'm sure that's not what he's talking about. I'm I'm pretty sure Jendek isn't like a video game guy like John Carpenter or anything. Uh, don't get that impression from any of his lyrics. No. But uh, the lifting lawn necks, it's the the whole album. I can't remember exactly. It's I think it's Austin something or other. It's one of his live albums from uh, last year, I think, maybe the year before. And it's just a song about how he's having such a great time getting drunk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it, it's it's a country song, and it, it it's like, oh, maybe it was Nashville because he's got like really tight nashville style musicians playing like country swing but it's the jendex style so it's sort of <laughs> sideways and feels really weird and yeah it's like well they're lifting long necks sort of it's it's like the classic old joke like oh you've been getting lots of exercise like that yeah i've been lifting beers up to my mouth and back down it's, it's like a, a song long you know a 10 minute long song that's that joke but in jandic lyric form it's incredible oh, that sounds amazing <laughs> and that whole album is one of my favorite recent ones there's also ones uh she drank her wine and it's just him listing all these things that you know people are trying to get a hold of this one she's just there's all these things that need to be done but she drank her wine <laughs> <laughs> rules nice nice uh but yeah i guess that's pretty much it oh yeah yeah i you know I, I remember something uh i think i referred to crocodile as an indonesian movie it's a thai movie not an indonesian movie Maybe oh, Bangkok. Okay. anyway not not significant so uh any final thoughts before we close for this week uh yeah get the fo- the f- <laughs> no, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. Okay. Well, I, I just I I have uh the rate your music page open for Jendek. So I was looking up a couple things while we were talking, and one of the threads that he's uh, quoted on is uh, imagine a musician's persona. Imagine Jendek's persona. Tell me. Oh my god. Uh... <laughs> if like I think I remember reading the post, and I think it's a sad coyote. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds actually pretty correct. Uh, yeah, okay, I can see it. Uh, <laughs> if I were to just go based on that, I would think some kind of a turtle that doesn't really want to be bothered, just based on mm. like the one performance I saw. Well, and certainly just his general public persona as someone who's never done an interview and was very reclusive for a good many years mm-hmm. that fits that fits i like the coyote thing though, the <laughs> I do his too. music though <laughs> what is a sad coyote <laughs> i think it was something like that i wonder if i can get it to appear uh depressed coyote there we go yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh all right well uh thanks everyone so much for listening we'll See you next week.